Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Hey guys, it's Sarah. Welcome to Talk and Fanfic, episode 304. Um, I've got an interview today for you with GV. I've mentioned uh, a couple of times that this interview is coming down the pipe, and I'm so excited to finally bring it to you. Um, this was recorded on August 28th. 2022, which was coincidentally the anniversary of the breakup of Oasis 13 years later, which is just kind of funny. But as you can see, we're bringing this to you in uh, almost two months later. So GV was someone, she was the first author that I thought of to interview from the Oasis RPF fandom. And you know, I knew we were going to talk about Oasis. I knew we were going to talk about RPF and some taboo topics like an incest ship, like the one prominent in the Oasis fandom, which is the ship of Liam and Noel Gallagher as brothers and romantically. Um, and so we touch on all those things and we touch on the music and we touch on um, how GV got to be in the Oasis fandom. But I think... This is just, I gotta, I have to say that this is, I mean, all of my interviews are always gratifying, but I just felt personally very inspired and touched by GV's story. As you'll hear in the interview, GV is a writer that's been writing for some time, but she wasn't always writing. There's a lot of other things going on in her life for the past um, a few years, and that includes a marriage, a divorce, and includes raising kids, and includes being the breadwinner for her family. Uh, and she's an incredibly strong person. And what really came through the most to me is just her, her perseverance in her writing and the thought that she's put into what writing does for her. And it's to her, it's a way of telling the truth and taking fully doing a pursuit that makes her happy. And it's a pursuit that some people would put shame on you for. That's fan fiction in general, amateur writing in general. She talks about the first time that a family member had read her writing without her permission and how that made her feel. And I think a lot of us have had an experience like that and what it means when you stop writing and what it means for you to write again and what that does in your personal sense of self and truth and how writing forces us to tell ourselves the truth, even when that might be personally difficult or inconvenient for where we are in our lives. We've all been in there, you know, in just a place where you're just kind of telling yourselves stories. Joan Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And that holds true of amateur writing as well as professional writers. The wonderful thing about fan fiction and amateur writing is that we're all we're all equal in this pursuit together. And so I just find her so personally inspiring. And it was just a really brave interview. I just, you know, there's nothing particularly traumatic, but whenever somebody is just direct with you and just, um, I don't know, I just, ugh, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it. She's just very much a personal inspiration to me now, so... Um, you know, and with this recent ship that I've been into, you know, getting into RPF generally, some people in the fan fiction world would tell you that you shouldn't read it and you shouldn't write it because it's about people that exist. 
And not only on top of that, you know, we're dealing with an incest ship. And I feel like kind of in the last episode, maybe I danced around that a little bit or, or um, you know, we, we were just trying to do a kind of a, a fun um, primer episode on the story of the Gallagher brothers in real life so that can prepare you for an interview like this and possibly to dig into some of the fic yourself. And so I feel like I didn't really directly say, yes, you know, this is an incest ship. People call this problematic. Um, some people really stay away from this, which is totally fine. But I feel like the great thing that comes through in this GV interview is like, it's important, I think, personally as a writer, I think liberating as a reader and a writer to just say what you like. And it's like, I have been reading this ship and writing this ship. And it's one of the most exciting kind of like writing times in my life the past few months for me. I think part of it, Jeevan and I talk about it, is that RPF, you know, there is an element of like, it's sort of exciting that these characters are based on real people and the story is always playing out in real time. So, you know, every day when I go on Twitter, who the fuck knows what Noel has said in an interview and who the fuck knows what Liam has said on Twitter. And it's like this insane drama playing out in real time as we go. So I think that is part of the appeal. And I think, you know, the other part for me, which is like Wincest Shipper. So Wincest is probably the most popular fictional incest ship in popular culture right now, which is the ship between Sam and Dean Winchester from this TV show Supernatural. You know that one of the compelling parts of that ship is just that this is a love that should not happen for lots of pragmatic and probably biological reasons. Most of us, you know, genetically, it's just not something that that is... Um, healthy psychologically it's not healthy emotionally it's not healthy there are reasons for that but the compelling part is that if some switch is flipped or some remarkable set of circumstances sets something into motion that causes a relationship to happen where it shouldn't and i want to be very careful here i don't want to compare it to a typical taboo romance like types of love that have been taboo in the past like a, like a gay relationship, like a relationship, a romantic relationship between trans people. Um, you know, those are, those are the sort of taboo relationships that come to mind for us in this time. And it's not, those aren't the same reasons that incest is taboo. Like there are genetic reasons why you should not procreate with a sibling, and that's just purely sort of genetic, typical, biological, male-female thing. But in any case, if circumstances somehow foster a relationship like that, is it a black and white situation? Is it something where it's just wrong, wrong, wrong? Or is it possibly, you know, the great thing about fiction is that I can kind of wipe away for now or push to the side for now, not completely disregard because fiction and reality are related and they do they are sort of mirrors to each other, but this is a fictional sandbox we play in so that I can ask the question, if you're 15 years old and you start to look at somebody in your family and you start to fall in love with that person in a way that you know that you shouldn't, what does that mean for your ability to find love in the world? Is that a relationship that can ever happen? Is that something that will damage other relationships in your life? What does that mean for you being able to live an authentic life and have a happy life and express yourself honestly and 
what kind of shame comes with that and what does that shame do to you and what does keeping secrets and lying do to you and is it possible to sort of untwist that situation into something tenable or sustainable or is it not you know elsie talked about that in her interview in episode 209 when we were talking about wincest she said you know lots of people go into this thinking that oh um you know we just we're so happy to see these like brothers come together and kiss and sleep together and she said i really take the view that like i'm just darkly fascinated by the what terrible circumstances have to happen and then play out in a situation like that like it's usually not a good thing when this happens um because it's not a happy story you know people don't generally write happy stories about a romance like this but can you write a happy story is my challenge right now with my own work and um anyway that's all I really wanted to say is that, that I think a lot of people in RPF and these taboo ships that we like inevitably get into and we call it like our our dark ships or, you know, stuff that's fucked up and we don't want to talk about. It doesn't mean you're a bad person and you shouldn't feel shame about that. And that's what TV and I talk about a few times in this interview. And, um, you know, it just I guess I'll wrap up here that pragmatically what I'm writing, specifically RPF. It actually has very little to do with them, the real people. You know, they're not going to read this. They really never will. I suppose it's possible, but like the chances of that are so small. Because this story isn't for them. The story is for me and it's for you, the reader. This is, that's what stories are. They're about the writer and the reader and this kind of magic that happens when my words create a space for you and your brain to come in and experience those words. And it's a little bit of alchemy that happens, that's singular, that my experience reading GB's fic, Broken Arrow River, is going to be different from your experience reading Broken Arrow River. And it's different from her experience writing it in her head. But that's the amazing thing about fiction and the fact that she's written this on her own time and her own dime and written exactly what she wanted to write, and there's no publishers, and there's no agent, and there's no manager. No one's telling her what to do. This is pure expression and bravery, and her taking the shame out of her own bread, as Liam would say. But that's what it is. And I was just thinking, too, you know, that's what this podcast is about. It's about a space for us to talk about things that people might tell us that we're fucked up for reading or caring about and it's um this is for us this is for you and this is for me and um i'm gonna keep doing this podcast as long as you guys keep listening to it um i would love to hear from you i don't often hear from people um i do see downloads but if you um i don't know if anything that i'm saying kind of rings a bell in you i would love to get a ping on tumblr or twitter or um any, I don't fucking know anywhere else that you can comment. Um, you know, if you want to give a five-star review, I never ask for those because it feels tacky. Um, but, you know, it's just nice to know kind of that someone's listening. And if you feel like it, great. I would love to hear from you. So as Noel Gallagher would say in the lyrics to a great song called Supersonic, I've got to be myself. I can't be no one else. I'm feeling supersonic. Give me gin and tonic. So sit back, relax wherever you are. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you can stick with me for three hours. I'll put some time caps in the notes in case you want to put a little bookmark here and come back. But thank you for listening and enjoy. 
it is a gray and rainy morning here in Kansas City, my hometown. Uh, but it's kind of a bittersweet uh, morning, but mostly sweet. I would say bitter because uh, today we're talking about Oasis and the Gallagher Brothers. And today is 13 years ago since the breakup of the band, which is very sad. But the sweet part is I get to talk about it today with an author I love that was the first author I think I read in the Oasis fic fandom. So please welcome GB to the show. And GB, thank you so, so much for being here this morning. Oh, I'm honored. Thanks very much for having me. Well, um, we have a lot to talk about today. We have a couple of your works. I think both are uh, works in progress and ones that you're sort of actively working on. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting for me because I've read through both of these. And I think before we really dig deep into the Oasis stuff, I always like to try and start with your early writing memories and how you started writing either fan fiction or not fan fiction. Um, so yeah, were you always writing from uh, a young age? Yeah, I was. So I was always a really avid writer, reader, and I always wanted to write. I identified as a writer, um, but actually, this what happened was I think something other people have experienced. One of my earliest kind of like really intentional stories was, I though I didn't know the word at the time, was a piece of like self-insert New Kids on the Block fic fan fiction, right? And Amazing. and one of my parents read it and sort of like teased me about it. And I was so horrified. Like, why would you read anything that is written in someone else's handwriting? Like, it just made mm. no sense to me. Like, clearly, if there's a lengthy piece of writing in somebody's handwriting, it's not meant for you. Um, and I was like 11 or 12 at the time, and I would never have spoken <sighs> to my dad like that. But it was just such a, um, a self-consciousness making uh, sort of experience. Um, and of course, it was like not even dirty because I was 11 or whatever, you know, um, but that that really affected uh, probably the way that I didn't really write fiction for like another 20 years almost. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I was always a really avid uh, letter writer and journaler, but I really didn't start writing complete works of fiction until I went back to college as an adult. I was about 32. I was kind of like approaching a divorce, although I maybe didn't know it yet. And I took a creative writing course. And what I found really quickly in those in-course, in-class session, sort of like writing exercises, is that fiction has this really amazing way of sort of like sliding you right off the rails of sort of like your perceived sense of self and kind of like dumping you in the in the deep waters of your unconsciousness, right? And you're like, shit. Ah. <laughs> oh no <laughs> i had no idea all this stuff was there and now i have to deal with it or do i um you know it has a a way of sort of just skipping over all of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves to sort of keep ourselves safe and steady in the life that we have chosen and which is why i think so many people stop writing they stop writing fiction or they stop journaling right because it's very hard to write without telling yourself the truth and if you start telling yourself the truth <laughs> things might have to change. Wow. That's really, that's an amazing thought. That's kind of a scary thought a little bit. Well, it is, it is. But if you listen to people talk, you, whenever somebody tells you about the time that they stop doing 
whatever their creative process is, very often with writers. Uh, you, you know, there's a time in which they were in a relationship and the partner read their writing and that was the end of their writing, oh. you know, and that's yeah. the one that person made an unconscious choice or a conscious choice to stop doing that truth telling in order to stay in the relationship. It's just what happens. It's what people do. Yeah. So um, I was at that time. <sighs> I had, I had been married for like 18 or 20 years and uh, well, not that long. So I was only like 32, but a long time I had been in this relationship and it was kind of, it was becoming really unstable. And, um, and that, you know, sort of the floodgates opened of like needing to write uh, these stories. Um, U2 was my first fandom. I read really avidly in Sherlock, but then the, my first stories were U2 stories. I've always been more interested in writing real person fic. So that was kind of where I got started. Oh, that's amazing. So were you reading other fan fiction in those years when you weren't writing? No. No, I was reading, you know, published fiction, usually of the literary variety. Uh, I don't remember reading a lot of erotica. Um, you know, fairly safe waters, I would say. Yeah. It's interesting, just this whole conversation will have that. I do a fan fiction podcast, but we're talking about RPF today, which isn't really fan fiction, but it sort of falls under that umbrella, almost for lack of a better home, I feel like. It is because it's amateur writing and nobody's making money off it in the same exact way that fan fiction is, and you can treat it the same way. Let me ask you this. For how did you discover that RPF and like YouTube fan fiction existed? Did you just stumble upon that somehow through like fandom generally? I don't remember what it was that sort of got me thinking about fan fiction in general. You probably remember like around 2012 or so, there were a couple of big pieces about Harry Potter fan fiction in like, you know, Time magazine or something like that. And maybe those things got my wheels turning. I was like, oh, how interesting. Um, I think that I had a classmate who was writing a Severus Snape fan fiction novel length long before the books were finished, long before Severus, uh, you know, Snape's character, final characterization became known. She kind of dialed in on him. So I think that I think that I was just kind of like doing that thing where you're like, you know, you shake the magic big eight ball of the internet and and see what it comes up with. Like, does thus and such exist? And you're like, oh, it does. <laughs> yeah. Were those uh, early YouTube fandom or fix that you were reading and then writing? Was that on fanfic.net or were there individual archives at that time? There actually used to be. There were two different communities outside of AO3, which I found before AO3. So there was a YouTube slash live journal. Um, which I think still exists. And there was a separate archive called, I think, loveisblindness.net. And that was where I found sort of my most, uh, you know, the, the stories that really touched my soul. This is, this is an amazing story. So there was this absolutely incredible author who wrote these incredible stories. She was absolutely amazing. I was just so in awe of this person as a writer. Um, and as far as I could tell, she stopped writing in like 2002. So very, very early sort of internet fan fiction. She was very active. She was just masterful. She popped up in the, you know, live journal in a very casual, maybe a couple times in like 2005, 2006, and then just disappeared, just went off, off the map. She no longer existed. 
And, um, but, but, but like she meant so much to me. And then years later, so this would have been like 2012 or 2013, she started writing again. And she's in like her second novel length work back in the YouTube fandom after like a 15 year break. And that was just so magical to me to see people leave and come back and have the really a lifetime of creativity charged by, I think what's amazing about real person fic is that the story keeps going. They don't, they don't die. They don't go away. You know, even though John Lennon died in 1980, you know, there's something about the fact that these people actually exist that keeps people engaged with it. You know, those those U2 fans, they're in their 50s. They've been in this since they were 18 or 20 years old. That's amazing. It is amazing. That's one of those things I love about doing this podcast is showing people that it's, I mean, it's totally fine to be a 13-year-old girl in bandfic fandom. That's great. But also people in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s are in it. And they're usually the ones writing the good (laughs) RPF. I'll say, you know, not that kids can't be talented, but it just takes years. And like you said, that's like, these are lifetime passions that we have. That's just amazing to hear that story that they're back doing what they love to do. Those are always some of my favorite just anecdotes that you, you don't really get into when you're chatting with people online, I feel like. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I appreciate that. Okay. So yeah, so you were, you were getting into the YouTube fandom on these archive sites, and then I assume you found AO3 and... So I fell out of U2 fandom largely just through the demands of my life. I was getting divorced. It's very traumatic. I had four kids. I was just busy with my life. And then I think at some point I had a really boring job where I was like spending a lot of time with spreadsheets and I would just like have a lot of YouTube going in the background and it was like, you know, just listening to music basically. And I like, so my musical tastes always were sort of like on the the singer songwritery end of things and um and youtube started pushing noel gallagher to me real hard because you know i was watching like great songwriters episodes and they were like no watch this guy and i was like i don't want to watch that guy <laughs> and they were like no 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 i think you probably need to watch um i think the dying of the light was the first one <sighs> of his songs that i watched and i was kind of like I always think of, of the Gallagher just like, you know, drinking uh, scotch, you know, you know, where you're like, oh, that is terrible. <laughs> that is terrible. Let me try it again. <laughs> Give me yeah. some. <laughs> Who would drink that? Can I try that? some more of that terrible thing? <laughs> and I was I was just super impressed with his songwriting, which led me into sort of, you know, um listening to oasis after a while and then it was actually the youtube comments that sort of got me as i was sort of looking at the way scary normal fans talk about uh them and i was like you know these sort of phrases in tropes start coming up again like i think the word angelic really like caught my attention i was like oh there is a clearly there is a a story you know, embedded in how people talk about these two brothers, you know, there's kind of like, there's a characterization of how people think about this person, Liam Gallagher, I will bet a thousand dollars that somebody out there ships these two brothers. And so I just, you know, shook the magic eight ball of the internet. And of course they do. Um, And this was in like, 
I feel like there was a, a low point in Oasis fandom where there was some activity in like 2015, 2016, 2017. And then there was this low period where there just, there wasn't that much new material. And that's when I started reading sort of like, um, me like mid 2019, I think there wasn't a lot of new material and what was there wasn't really catching my attention, but all of Liam Knoll's work had been published by then. I found a couple of okay fix by a author who I think since has orphaned them, although the fix are still up. Um, there was one about a Christmas tree, which I just really loved. Um, so I felt like there was no new work at the time. Maybe I was wrong, but I was like, I was kind of so inspired, right? That I like, I wrote my first Oasis fic, which is, um, I'm not even coming up with the name of it, but about Liam asking Noel to like beat him with a yardstick and sort of like reenact. Some oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Right. Uh, whatever I choose. <laughs> That's it. And, um, yes. And so that was the first story that I was writing. I was kind of like, oh, this is so bad. <laughs> this is like. But so good. I know. Just going to go straight for it with like all of the bad and dirty. <laughs> I love it. It's like a very Gallagher way to go into your GSS fan fiction. Right? Guns blazing. <laughs> so that was how that happened. Yeah, that's amazing. So 2019, um, I mean, I'm wondering if. I suppose the supersonic documentary exposed a lot of people who weren't interested in Oasis to like notice Oasis maybe. Because I'm I'm sort of surprised that like, I don't know, it seems like mo- pretty much all the works on AO3 are really, there's not like stuff from like 2011, it seems like, on there so much. It's like all fairly recent. Um, do you remember how many works that the like the Liam slash Noel tag had at that time? I don't remember looking. I remember that most of the works that I was finding when I first came, they seemed to be uh, short, mostly one shots. Um, they seemed to be mostly, you know, plot, what plot, you know, like just... Um, yeah. Get them in the bedroom. <laughs> very fairly light stuff, and I don't want to disparage those fix, but there's very little that kind of stood out to my memory at, the, at that time. Uh, aside from Lionel, who I think you know their works are amazing and and incredible, yeah. um, but there was it was a I remember it being a quiet time, and maybe that's because there was still stuff happening over on the Live Journal which hasn't made its way over. And I just, I wasn't aware of it at the time because there was an Oasis fan fiction live journal called Mad for Our Kid. Uh, and That's it, right. It still yes. exists and it hasn't been imported. Um, so for whatever reason, there wasn't a lot going on on AO3 at the time that I recall. Yeah. Had um had like Snickfic or Savage and Wise started posting at all? I think that, I think that they both started posting in the couple of months after I, I did my first story, I think that SNCC yeah. had been reading in Oasis, but had not yet published anything in Oasis. If we, if we go back and look at the dates, I think that I published whatever I choose, like in the week after Thanksgiving 2019. And I think that her SNCC's first AO3 uh, Oasis fit came maybe in December, maybe in early January, and then Savage and Wise's first one came maybe in January or February, but I, I'm not totally sure on that. But there was this kind of 
blossoming, you know, right around that sort of end of 2019, beginning of 2020, where there was a sort of like resurgence of the Oasis Fic, which was really, really exciting to be a part of. Oh, I remember being in, I got into Cobra Kai just about a kind of a year after things got started, but they were still on YouTube. So it was still small. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so it's not, not quite in the same way as like, nothing to sort of this blossoming that you experienced in, Oa- mm-hmm. in the Oasis Vanna, but mm-hmm. that when, when those kind of surges start to happen and it's not too overwhelming, um, I just love that. It's like the best time to be in it. It's like a young and it's exciting. I love that. Absolutely. It was, it was brilliant. It was so fun. When, um, so when you were starting to, um, you starting to listen to the music, had you seen like the supersonic documentary or were you, were you going out and buying like Paul Gallagher's um, kind of biography of, of his childhood with Liam and Noel, or was there any like other resources? Or are you just going off the music? Mm, I think I know I didn't see Supersonic until after I had been writing for a little while. And I don't remember, I think I was several chapters into the passing of Peggy Gallagher before I saw Supersonic, which was. I'll go into that in just a second. Um, so I was think, I think I was doing, and I think I didn't begin buying books until later. So it was largely uh, just sort of research on the internet, finding you know, magazine articles. I might have found that um, there's an old Blogspot archive of uh, magazine interviews. Yes, I've seen that. Uh, stuff like that. that. I think those were my early resources. And then the, the, the books and the movie came a little bit later, I recall. I think, so I think I started writing in, you know, late November of 2019. And around the Christmas holiday, I remember watching Supersonic with my kids and my boyfriend at the time. And by then, I had a pretty good handle on, on the, the Gallagher Sess fandom. Of course, I didn't mention it to my family. And, uh, and, and I'm watching it. My head is like exploding. I'm like, is this for real? Like, like people, what are other people seeing when they watch this? How did they do it? And, it is crazy. Uh, it is insane. And, and, and for example, for example, in Supersonic, there's this, little three seconds of like, you know, there's the little, there's like the little voiceover of Noel talking about whatever, when the camera's in Japan and, uh, and, and you see them having this argument and there's that kiss with the sunglasses. Right. Yes. And I'm kind of like, (laughs) (laughs) and same thing in the in spiral carpet segment where this kind of like, Oh, talking about this and that and this and that. And, you know, and I was kind of like, yep, we had a real good time. And there's like two seconds of him absolutely like Clint Boone standing in his underwear in a room full of people. And he is like wailing on his ass with what looks like a leather belt. Like it's a totally staged. Everybody has seen this before. We know what this is like flogging. Yes. And and I'm just sort of like, <laughs> And my family is like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it makes you feel a little crazy. Cause you're like, am I, am I the only one seeing this? Right. 
well, I don't want to bring up the Lock Lama kiss already, but it's like the fact that that photo didn't completely like shake the Oasis fandom. Everyone's just like, ha ha ha. Oh, no. What, here's what I remember. On the uh, anniversary of Lock Lama this year, of course, on Twitter, there's always anniversary posts. And uh, I think it's like one of those main accounts, like mainly Oasis or something, posts a picture of the set list next to the famous kiss where mm-hmm. Liam has his tongue in Noel's mouth. They're like mm-hmm. making out. I don't. We don't have video footage, so we don't know how brief it was. But like people's tongues are in their brother's mouths mm-hmm. in that photo. Mm-hmm. And all of the YouTube comments are like, wow, what a set list. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Incredible set list. <laughs> I just like, there were no, seriously, no comments about the kiss. And I was like, is there just like this collective, yes. just blindness i don't understand it is the craziest thing i've ever seen it is so true it is i mean it must be compulsory heterosexuality right we're like we just believe that people are straight until they force us to believe otherwise yeah you know of course it's the the incest thing too is just uh, a whole nother sort of taboo issue that people don't want to acknowledge that it can happen you know we're not gonna like argue over like the morality of it, but people just don't even want to, I think, acknowledge that it has the possibility of existing. And so they're just like, oh, cocaine. Ha 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 ha. Right. This explains all the behavior. Right. It's like, no, it does not. <laughs> Most people don't snort coke and then decide to make out with their sibling. Like that's, anyway, that's maybe getting ahead of ourselves. I don't know. But I can, I sympathize with you sitting there on the couch watching a supersonic watching this behavior it's like <laughs> you're just seeing this thing that no one else seems to be seeing it's like crazy yeah it is and i and i think the other thing that really stood out to me about supersonic is that um they speak to each other and of each other exactly like a very embittered divorced couple this is the way divorced people talk about each other Like when you're still in love with your ex who left you for another woman, you talk about them like Liam talks about Noel. That's just the way women talk. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and probably on the same hand, it's like if you're the one that's done the leaving, like Noel, you don't want to talk about it at all. Like I remember on Jonathan Ross, he was on there and Jonathan was really pushing him to like, seriously, you know, you haven't talked to your brother and like. When are, I mean, surely Oasis is going to happen. He's really pushing him on the Oasis thing. And Noel, he's so good, obviously, in interviews and with the press, and he controls everything that's sort of going on, and he's charming. Jonathan Ross, I guess, had gone through a divorce or something, and, he's, and he made a direct comparison. He's like, well, I'll get Oasis back together as soon as you and your wife get back together. Or it was something like that. And I was like, damn. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and, and when that happens, you are cruel to them to make them stay away that's i mean that's what that's what people do you know they um i mean you see it fairly often men who were hurt by that situation where they were you know there was a woman that you know they broke up very often they are cruel to that woman and belittle her to justify their actions uh you know it's very very common behavior it's just not common to see it so uh unashamedly yeah and it's you know, it's like families fall out and siblings fall out. And this is different because it's in the public eye. But I think if it was 
kind of a normal I'm trying to think if there's I'm sure there's um all sorts of other music examples sorry that's my cat uh-huh. <laughs> um but it just feels like the behavior is so different from what otherwise like a normal sibling fallout would be it's absolutely not at all like a normal sibling relationship do you um before you saw supersonic and all that stuff do you remember if you kind of latched on to one of the brothers kind of personality first and sympathized with one of them more or felt like you understood one of their music more um i don't know that i kind of allied or identified with one or the other of them i definitely was more sort of fascinated by noel and sort of more attracted to him as a personality and i felt liam well to go back for just a second i feel i feel that it's very con common in fandom right now to feel that you have to you have to approve of the person that you're a fan of right you have yeah. to be able to uh, morally condone them somehow you have to um support them in their actions and if they're a bad person somehow and you can't morally uh, support and condone them, then you have to stop being a fan of them. Um, that's what people do when they are trying to be good people in their fandom. I see that fairly often where people are trying to show that they're good people. I right. Think. They're using their sort of, their sort of fan affiliations to sort of, you know, a certain justify their good personness. Um, and I mean, my feeling is that if, if that was what I wanted to do with my fandom, I would be a fan of different people. Like these are, these are just not <laughs> the, these are not the people that you would choose. Um, there's, there's just, I'm just never, ever, ever going to discuss whether one or the other of them is a good person or not. Like it's stupid and I don't care. <laughs> so yeah. So I don't, that's not the way I approach it. I think they've both done a lot of good things. I believe that most people are essentially pretty good people making mistakes. So when I'm, when I think about, you know, who's my favorite Gallagher brother, I'm not thinking about whether they're good people or whether they do bad things. I'm thinking about whether they're interesting. (laughs) And, um, and Liam, I found um, quite frightening the closer I got it to him because um, he strikes me and does certainly in the beginning, I was like, he might, he might just be actually crazy. Like, like he, he, he might be very, very seriously mentally ill. He might have some pretty significant like intellectual disabilities. Like I can't really tell like how bright is this guy? Is he competent? You know, it like there's a real feeling of like instability around Liam, which um, uh, some people really want to baby girlify him, and some people, you know, infantilize him, and then some people um, want to sort of, you know, not pay as much attention to that aspect of him. But the fact is that I mean, there's a lot of evidence that he was just off his rocker a lot of the time, and not not just because of the drugs. He's just a very, very, very odd guy. And so when I, when I came close to 
you know, working from his perspective or thinking about how he thinks about things, I found it a little scary because there's this, there's this sense of deep water and um, a lack of control with Liam that, that I find frightening. And with Noel, I really identified with his, the way he sort of hyper-rationalizes everything, like hyper-controls everything, um, and yet has these kind of really intense um, undercurrents of emotion uh, that are kind of driving him, but he won't become conscious of them. I think that's what really attracts me uh, to Noel is the idea of sort of deliberately remaining unaware of your sort of primary pains and conflicts as a way of sort of coping with them. That really uh, speaks to me, I guess. Uh, that's extremely well put. Yeah, Nola's, for me, he's been a little bit easier to write as well. It is like kind of a layered thing that is exciting to try and understand as a writer and pull up those things, those like traumas that he is absolutely doing his best and doing probably very well at not acknowledging at all. Because mm -hmm. he, yeah, he's confounding like in, in interviews where it might have been Parkinson or, or something. I one of those like sit down interviews where the interviewer is just like baffled. They're just like, but but your father hit you and he hit your mother and he hit your brother. And that must be so damaging and traumatizing. And Noel's just like, I don't think about it really. And I like either he's just a very good liar, which he we know that he is because he managed to skip like six weeks of school while convincing his mother he was still it's, it's so something mm. like that or he's he is telling truth and i'm inclined to like it's like a bit of both i think because he's right that their music and his music is like so like soulful but like always hopeful but without being um light i guess mm -hmm. i don't know like it's it's a it's incredible music and and there's a depth to it that you don't quite can't quite get your head around. Like the lyrics don't always make any sense, but like it makes you feel things. And oh yeah, yeah. I used to I used to have a friend who wrote lyrics like that. What I think about when I think about Noel saying like, "No, I don't think about that," or "No, it doesn't affect me." The way I sort of translate that in my head is, "I will not be controlled by that." Yeah. Uh, because of course there are a lot of ways in which your the harms you've lived through um, can completely run your life. You know, you end up being completely dominated by things that happen to you, and people end up feeling quite powerless. And I, th I think that there was a way in which he just decided, you know, I'm not going to let that own me. I'm not going to let that run my day to day and decide who I am. I will not let that happen. I really, you know, admire that in a way. It's extremely admirable. And it's um, probably a bit of a double-edged sword psychologically. There was some quote he was talking about. He actually sort of does acknowledge how bad it got. He was like, you know, when your dad, you know, hits you and knocks you unconscious and then you wake up and you're okay and in one piece, you're pretty much not scared of anything anymore. It just, I feel like, yeah, at some point he must have made a conscious decision that's like, this isn't going to ruin my life. And it has to be something he probably like kind of has to like wake up every day and do until it just becomes 
automatic or something. I did, like he does genuinely seem to have had a very happy life. But, you know, when you go through that much kind of conscious denial of things, although it is like really good at, on one level of not only surviving, but thriving, mm-hmm. but it's like, then we think about like the way that Liam sees the world, which is like, as you said, it's like a, he's, he's like a little alien. I think he's like, you look into his eyes and you're like, it is scary is the right word. Cause it's like, we don't quite understand how Liam's brain works. I think it's maybe a little easier now that he's middle-aged and he seems to have mellowed. Yeah. So it's not as like looking at a wild animal as much, but yeah. I imagine that the way that he sees things and processes the world, if that's your brother and you have to spend like all day with him, that is probably just exhausting. But also I remember there was an interview that someone posted on Tumblr recently, which this interview was talking to Liam and this was like 96, the height of the chaos, especially for Liam. He had reporters following him everywhere. The reporters kind of like, or the interviewers musing kind of on a similar thing, like, and it's like true to this day, you can't quite tell, you can't get a head wrapped around Liam's intelligence. Like, cause sometimes he says these sort of profound things that seem like so immediately true. And that's what this interviewer was like, when he does speak, it's like the truth is much more immediate than maybe it is speaking to quote unquote, a normal person or Noel. Like he seems to have kind of these in this intuitive intelligence, maybe emotional intelligence is like, I think extremely high for Liam, which is maybe why watching Noel, like, especially through interviews and stuff where he's like, so he's controlling his image so well is probably infuriating to Mm -hmm. Liam. Um, I don't know where my question is going at all, except like, it's just like, I'm kind of a wild to have these two, like, so yin yang extremes, like their personalities are so different. Right. Um, well, and let's just let's just give Noel his due for a second, because within the realm of celebrities, Noel is remarkably unguarded. Right. He says the wildest mm-hmm. shit. Um, yeah. You know, he's he's not your typical bland celebrity and he's never pretending to be. Oftentimes what he's doing is he's mm-hmm. casting distractions in the way of the truth. Uh, but I just remember it all. I'll throw it out there that one of the interviews that I read early on that really sort of clued me in about, you know, kind of like the scariness I feel of Liam is, uh, I believe it's called My Name is Disturbance. And it, I think it was published in Spin or maybe Q in like, I think 1996. And uh, he's like standing on a table in a pub. Um, and that that one for me, I remember just kind of being like, oh my God, this guy is terrifying. <laughs> I think Liam is like that. Like he has, yeah, this kind of wild side, but do you, I find at least that he's also like, incredibly endearing and charming. And I try not to, it is tempting to sort of infantilize him. And I think in a way he is childlike, but he's also an adult. But have you through writing both of them come back a bit on that kind of like wariness of Liam or like, what is your, what do you think is the appeal of people? Cause Liam right now is like the peak of his solo career. Mm. He is like, he's like a beloved figure in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that has to do with like, Whatever comes out of his mouth, at least to me, seems extremely authentic. Like he really believes everything that he's saying um, in a way that uh, maybe we don't with Noel. Not that like Noel's always lying. I just think that he's um, and you're right. He is. That's a great point about Noel. Kind of like he is direct and honest in a way that celebrities are so like careful not to offend anyone. Mm -hmm. Noel still doesn't give a fuck, just like he never gave a fuck in the 90s. But something about Liam, like 
his authenticity mm-hmm. seems appealing to me. Do you find that, or do you have any kind of thoughts on the appeal? Uh, yeah, of absolutely. Liam? He's um, when when I write Liam, you know, there's there's a balance. I you know the the crazy I always like to keep prominent because I think it's uh, I think it's easy to forget. I think of many times when people are writing Liam, they will sort of like lean on the drugs and bad behavior, but sort of forget about or under develop the ways in which he's he's really really bewildered by his own self but then he's got this very authentic um and not only authentic it's very it's very unguarded kind of unstudied and very very intuitive sense of himself and the world and other people which was really really fun uh, to develop in my first long oasis story the passing of peggy gallagher it's um that's that's kind of the quality that sort of brings Noel back to him in that story, where it's just kind of like it's completely spontaneous and untutored understanding of emotional truths is the quality that I think that Liam has, which I really enjoyed bringing forward in the fiction. Yeah. I said we were going to talk about the uh, passing of Peggy Gallagher only because I ran out of time and didn't make a bunch of notes. But I feel like we should cover it briefly because it feels like this was your first long fic. Mm -hmm. So it was probably quite a journey for you. Um, Can you just talk a little about sort of the initial idea and conception of of that story, what you remember about that? Yeah, I think that I, I mean, when I started writing, it was very, very early in the fandom and I wanted basically the the challenge was what are the circumstances that could bring them back together? It's really only Peggy's death, I feel. So I was like, okay, so let's, you know, it's basically like the the little um, thought, thought game exercise of like, okay, so what does that look like? And I'm, I thought that story was going to be, you know, like maybe three to six chapters, you know, like 10,000 words or something like that. And um, ended up being like four times that length. <laughs> so for me, it was basically like putting putting them actually kind of chained in the environment of their childhood house and see what happens. And, uh, you know, and things unfold step by step. I really was not sure that I was going to, that that was going to be a a Gallagher Seth story when I started. I wasn't at all sure that I was going to include that in the storyline, but that was a very, very intense creative process for me. I wrote that story. I wrote 16 chapters in 17 weeks. It was, I did a chapter, I did a chapter every week, uh, except for one. I missed one week. So that's about 2,500 to 4,000 words every seven days for four months. That's amazing. I think so. (laughs) I have no conception of how other people write, uh, but for me, it felt very, very intense. Like I had no friends. I went nowhere. I spoke to nobody. I know I ended the relationship I was in. I had four kids and I was working at the time. It was absolutely insanity i thought of nothing else it was so immersive but i was so um proud of that work because it was really the first serious piece of long fiction i had done i was kind of like watching myself do it kind of from the outside as though it was someone else you know and still when i look back on it i i don't it it sort of feels like it wasn't written by me you know i'm sort of like Mm. (laughs) yeah do you feel like that work helped you get through some of that stuff in your personal life that was uh, a little chaotic um my life had been or was like it that. therapy kind of on the other side well i think i feel like it was tremendously um p- 
positive for me to allow myself to concentrate to that degree. Uh, There's a way in which a lot of people, and I'm speaking from like a sort of an adult mommy perspective, a lot of people have a lot of pride in their busyness. You know, people, people say things like, oh, I wish that I could knit. I would love to write if only I didn't have this or that or the other thing, right? If only I didn't, whatever. And we excuse ourselves from our creativity because we've got these outside demands. We don't ever allow ourselves to sit and focus. You know, to be creative, to write or do anything seriously, it's a tremendous amount of solitude and uh, boredom. And just kind of staring into the dark, dark abyss of what is in there when you're not distracted by anyone or anything else. It is excruciating. Uh, Most of us don't allow ourselves to go there because it is very acutely uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, So for me, having spent, you know, eight or 10 years, well, I mean, my kids were probably 16 or 17 at the time, the oldest of them. So I had been very, very busy for a long time and the last eight years had been especially stressful. So for me, it was very um, restorative isn't the right, right word because it was agonizing, but it was an amazing experience to, to just be like, this is just me and my process and all of the rest of you can fuck right off. Yeah, especially, especially for... Uh- I feel like women in particular fall into a nurturing role. Maybe it's either natural for us or it's a social thing or a bit of both. Like when you're, even me, I don't have kids, but I'm in a relationship and I feel guilty because I, to write, I have to come in here. I have to close the door and that's, you know, just like, don't, I cannot do this on the couch with you talking to me. So it's time you cut away from your relationships especially if you're married, mm-hmm. especially if you have kids, like you're just like giving all the time. So mm-hmm. I imagine it was quite like, and th- and those are good things and noble things in life and they, and they help give you a fuller life. But also taking that time for yourself must have felt like pretty empowering. Like I remember me and what I like wanted for myself, you know, and I find writing, it's like sort of compulsive and it feels so good when you finish something and it's, it does. The best. It does feel good. It, it is. Um, you're right. It's to um, to take time for yourself. It can feel quite quite uh, transgressive, and it can make people pretty unhappy with you. You know, I remember when I was married. Um, I I felt like I had to sort of apologize or excuse or have a reason for the time that I took by myself, even if it was like to exercise or something like that. And I remember my husband uh, became quite anxious when he could tell that I was paying attention to something. You know, when I was like absorbed in a book or I would like go into my room and shut the door to do yoga or whatever. And he, I mean, he had problems. He wasn't normal, but, um, but he would, it made him stressed out to know that, that I was paying attention to other things. Um, so it can be a real violation of our socialized standards for women or our standards for ourselves to give the time to create your creativity like your house is not going to be neat your house is not yeah. going to be clean you are not going to be <laughs> eating great meals uh and that's just the truth of like if you're going to give time to like your creative work you just have to let go of those expectations and uh, and that's real hard to do yeah i imagine too i think this will dovetail um into the other into the other fix because when i think about the passing of peggy gallagher 
it's like it is immersive. Like we'll talk about in your other works, like your ability to world build is like pretty incredible and your research is very thorough. So you do get a very vivid picture of Manchester, but I also feel like it being kind of a theoretical, like your departure because Peggy Gallagher is uh, not dead. She is alive. And so I feel like with this one, maybe did you feel like you had a little more like just creative fictional freedom to kind of explore or did it like, did it turn out the way you thought it would? Or was there anything that sort of surprised you about this? The things that I think surprised me most about, about the process of writing Peggy, I I was surprised at the way that it turned out, sort of the emotional journey that they went through. I think for me as a writer, one of the things that really surprised me was the way the original characters came forward uh, in Mm. the story. And that has happened in other stories that I wrote too, that it's like, um, I'm like, oh, there needs to be a doctor. Okay, so here's a doctor. And then all of a sudden, this doctor, you know, sort of has like a life and a personality and a history and, you know, thoughts and desires all of his own. And it kind of, it's, you know, it's kind of mind blowing to encounter this person who, the way that I feel, and I I guess maybe this was the, Peggy was the first time that I really experienced this is that I don't feel like I'm making things up. I feel like I'm thinking about things until I understand what it was. You know, I I don't feel like I make up ideas. I see the way that it must have been. And so that having that process happen with original characters was, you know, exciting. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Let me dig into, um, so we have two works today that I really wanted to dig into. I think we'll start with um, Broken Arrow River okay. first, if that's all right with you. Yep. So this this is an extremely unique fic, I feel like, in the fandom. We have our familiar characters here, but in a way that they're totally unfamiliar. It's like genre fiction. It's a complete AU. It's set in another time and place that like is ne- no one ever thinks about when they think about the Gallagher brothers. Um, yeah, I have lots of questions about this one. But yeah, what do you remember about sort of the idea? How did this one sort of come mm. come to you? Well, I wanted to write a Western Oasis story forever. Um, there is an amazing YouTube cowboy story. It's like a hundred thousand words long. It exists only on YouTube or YouTube slash Live Journal. Um, and if the link still exists, I'll see if I can dig it up for you. But it, it was this absolutely stunning, amazing one hundred thousand words of like cowboy, uh, you know, amazingness. And I was like. Too bad you could never in a hundred years write an Oasis cowboy story. (laughs) It absolutely (laughs) would never work. You know, and I would have this thought every few months forever. And then one day, I don't remember why it was that it came to me, sort of like this idea of Liam as a as a revival preacher. And I was like, oh, that's it. <laughs> it's it's so perfect. Well, <laughs> yeah. I was like, that is the thing that can make the cowboy story work. <laughs> and now I have to do it. <laughs> I can't not do it. Yeah, because when you th- when you sort of picture Westerns, obviously the first thing you think about obviously is cowboys, cattle drives, maybe cowboys and Indians kind of thing. But you sort of forget like the, the angle with like the religious fervor that was that was going on at that time and how that fit into like building sort of the culture that America sort of has become is like such a 
I, it's like a stroke of genius to me. And I do remember seeing some YouTube they were at an Oasis show. They were interviewing somebody and they named the person's name. So I don't know if this fan later became famous or something, but they were asking him about Liam and Noel. He was like, I see Noel as a poet and Liam as a town crier. Nice. Is that great? Yeah. But yeah, Liam, because, you know, they, they talk about the Gallagher's like relationship with the religion is probably something I'm I'm sure like you could go into or you've, you've thought about anyway, but it's already sort of their present in the music talking about like... um obviously Noel's lyrics are full of it. Like even his high flying bird stuff, like Mm -hmm. you're the only God I'll ever need or uh, sister lover. There's something about um, the God. I know, I don't know, basically like feeling and falling down, feeling abandoned kind of by God. And yet Liam has this like cosmic and he uses the word God, like all the time. Mm -hmm. He has this kind of like, and sort of, he literally like on his solo, um, stage now with uh, by the keys there's this big rock and roll like almost altar and he like kneels at it and he'll, like kiss it sometimes <laughs> so Liam has this like even though he's not traditionally Christian like he has this kind of religious behavior I don't know right well he certainly inspires feelings of religious intensity I remember very early on one of the first things that I sort of tuned into that that the Oasis that Oasis was still real and current and happening was um you know Liam the MTV live at Hull City Hall and one you know the the intensity and the adoration of the crowd was so striking uh you know people absolutely do react to him as they would to the, as a god figure and then the other thing that struck me about that was that somebody very deliberately framed that stage that lighting that building everything about that performance was visually created to support that and i was like somebody deserves an award <laughs> he looks godlike in that <laughs> yeah, absolutely he elicits that response it probably was debbie um who, you know gave the directions to the you know the staging the set designers and stuff um but yeah so this idea of of liam as the uh, as a sort of pentecostal preacher really dovetails well with the uh, with the crazy right i really wanted to keep that in this story this idea that he's you know that he's amazing and attractive but he's not normal you know he's 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 not an ordinary stable kind of guy and you can't really um trust him to sort of get through life in a normal guy kind of way um now that's not necessarily how Liam is in real life, uh, but it is how I like to characterize him. So I really wanted to have that. And and there's um, I haven't seen this movie since I was like fourteen, and I don't even remember the name of it. But it was River Phoenix's final film. I think he died uh, while it was in post production, and it's set in the American West and he, in like the eighteen you know, 60s, maybe, he had been married to an Indian woman, and she died. And he's kind of going off his rocker. And that the memory of that movie is kind of driving some of my sort of, you know, aesthetic uh, sense of the story. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, besides that movie, 
with the aesthetic stuff. Is there like, and I'll, I'll I'm going to read an excerpt because the language is incredible. Do, do you have influ- other influences like Western specific influences like TV, movie, books mm. any, that you were kind of following or not necessarily following, but inspired by? Yeah, my parents were both John Wayne fans growing up. I think mm-hmm. that the True Grit was uh, was very prominent in my imagination. Uh, there's a there's a second film made when John Wayne was quite old called Rooster, Rooster Coburn. Uh, it was a sequel, very memorable. Yeah, my dad was real into John Wayne, so we watched a lot of John Wayne when I was growing up, and that that was actually one of my favorite ones because it's actually a bit lighter in like tone. It's kind of a comedy almost. Yep, and then um, there was one that um, called Cowboys, which was almost a comedy, right? And um, and I remember the the wagon load full of whores was very uh, uh, memorable <laughs> for me. The other one that was uh, sort of is uh, influencing my work here is. Um, Ron, I think it was Ron Howard's big directorial debut, Far and Away, with uh, Nicole Kidman, um, Nicole Kidman, and Tom Cruise. I, I was maybe thirteen when it came out, and is it's a very splashy, old style Hollywood epic. And I, you know, whatever. Tom Cruise may be a horrible person. I don't really care. It's a really entertaining movie. He got a ton of shit for having a really bad accent. I don't really care. So they start, <laughs> they start out in Ireland and they come first to Boston and then to like Oklahoma, I think. And, uh, you know, it's about Irish immigrants and, uh, that even though that is set much later, maybe like 1880s or 1890s, that sort of visual of the, uh, the Boston slums, is definitely influencing sort of my imagination about about Noel's childhood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's um I'm so excited to see where this goes. It's like one of those that I I I don't know if if we had like a big huge fandom, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I would have clicked on it or not because I I might have thought like ah, I don't want to see them as cowboys. I'm not sure what I would have thought, but. Because it's you, your name's on it, and because for like anything that comes up under the tag, I'm gonna read. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm definitely. I mean, I don't know. I might have. Like, come on, Liam and Noel in a western. Like, I might have actually clicked on it, even if we had like thousands of works. But yeah, so I I wanted to just briefly kind of um, read this excerpt here from Broken Arrow River, um, just because the language to me, and, and and you can comment on this, it just seems so painstaking. So. Um, I could really have picked anything. I mean, it's like none of it's um, carelessly written at all, but this is Noel in the first chapter. So we're in Noel's point of view for this story. He's, as you mentioned, he's come over from Boston. I don't know if we know that in this history yet, but uh, we know that he's like working for these people on this like cattle drive and um, his kind of trail boss or something, Dan, has taken him into this saloon And uh, this is Noel in the saloon here. Noel glanced covertly around the main room as they entered. He came here but seldom, having no money for cards or drink. The saloon was dim and worn, with a few men playing cards, others eating, and among them the figures of women. One of them approached him with a pitcher of beer. Out of habit, he moved his cup away. His agreement with the livery included two meals a day and a bed in the feed room, but no wage. Go on, Dan said, thumping his elbow and flipped a nickel on the table. I don't see Blue Sal tonight, he observed to the girl. Someone pay for a whole night? In bed, the girl said. She's been sick. 
It ain't the French pox, is it? Dan demanded. The girl gave him a scornful look. Noel eyed her over his plate. She had the coloring of the mixed French-Indian traders he'd seen in Missouri, a dark, rosy, olive complexion and masses of glossy hair pinned up in whirls to mimic a fashionable curl. She'd wiped the table and briskly set the lamp to rights. Out of habit, Noel took stock of her rings and doodads, mostly pretty but cheap, mother-of-pearl set in silver and such. That abalone bracelet would fetch a penny or two. There were a few other small valuables in this room, a silver salt cellar and a fine china tea set for when a fine gentleman should come to call, if any such came to this godforsaken town. Noel tucked the knowledge away in his mind. So it's just kind of a quiet observing moment, but I thought that there's just a lot of like turns of phrase that feel very like Western or Louis L'Amour or whatever Mm. you want to sort of call that style. And so um, I just wanted to ask if that's like, kind of difficult to keep that kind of uh, third-person POV and that we're sort of used to, I don't know, maybe a certain style of from you. I don't know. But it's like specifically feels very Western-y and like period appropriate. And so is that kind of hard to do that? Does that slow your writing down? Um, what's that like kind of writing in that style? I don't know. Uh, so th- that – that particular passage is really kind of like feeling your way through the scene, you know, like I, like I said, I, I think about it until I see it. Um, my, my own personal greatest writing influences are a little archaic in the way that they sound. And I'll say that for me, nearly all of my pieces are an experiment with, uh, voice and point of view one way or another so i've done a few pieces in that like third person objective um where you don't you don't see the thoughts no one thinks any thoughts there's no internal perspective at all um or a very close first you know like the way um i suppose peggy was a close third was what it was so with this Mm. one I can't even say for sure what it is that I'm trying to do. Um, I don't know that I'm consciously trying to write in a sort of a Western style. I will say that I have read a couple of, you know, classic Western novels this summer, uh, kind of as an experiment. I wasn't particularly impressed. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I mean, they're okay. Um, but I will I think say you get cartoony real fast, like with, real fast. with some of that. Yeah. Um, but I'll say that some of my biggest writing influences, they do sound a little archaic. So the, the fiction writing of C.S. Lewis is a huge one for me. And Ford Maddox Ford parades and um, he, that definitely is like my most admired writer. Um both of those guys came from a very um, classic Western education, right? Where you, you read them and their, uh, their sentence structures are just more complex than most writers now would use. And in particular, if, if you know, readers out there have not yet read Parade's End, uh, you know, put it at the top of your list because... I aspire so much to what Ford Maddox Ford does. Like he is so relentless in the perfection of his sentences. It is 
exhausting to read because it is so perfect. I'm just like knocked out. Like I can't, I can't even handle how technically perfect his writing is. And, and there's all of this incredible emotional content loaded in, uh, but it's never overplayed. And to just have such perfect control of the language. I don't know that I'll ever be able to do it because I think you have to have a really advanced technical understanding of, of English to do it. And I'm kind of more like muddling my way through with the crappy, you know, late 20th yeah. century public school education. But, <laughs> but that sense of sort of uh, precision and balance in the sentences is something that um, I really aspire to. Yeah. I feel like that comes through here and it's, um, yeah, I don't know what that style is either. It, it feels a little like austere or something to me like stark a little bit and you know that which which is like obviously appropriate for a western because you're just out in this dangerous landscape there's just no protections really so it feels very kind of exposed and mm -hmm. serious because you can't mess around or you're gonna you're gonna die <laughs> yeah uh, my uh my writing often uh gets um People often use the word photographic to talk about my writing style, right? It's as mm -hmm. though you're seeing it. I think that's a good way to describe it often where like, um, where I'm just trying to show without explanation, you know, the meanings yeah. ideally are embedded in the images. I shouldn't have to tell you what it means. I shouldn't have to explain how people felt. You should be able to see it and know that's kind of the ideal, right? That you're kind of seeing it as though it is a photograph or a movie and you just understand it without having things explained. Yeah. I think that works well for Western too, because I feel like oftentimes those personalities that had to survive out there, you didn't really have time to be particularly internal, you know? So watching Noel just go through his like everyday chores and like you give some details about him thinking about his backstory or that might come up in the dialogue, but it's not like he's agonizing over something. It's just like, it is what it is. It works. It works great. I was going to, I guess the, the next thing I was just going to ask about, it kind of dovetails up with the visual stuff. It's just like the world building and like mm -hmm. the research you have to do. Mm -hmm. um, that seems like a kind of a big part of this process for you. It is. And I actually moved the setting of the story around quite a bit to get sort of the cultural setting and the landscape that I wanted. Most Westerns are set, uh, you know, post-Civil War. Right in kind of like the Southwest, you know, Colorado, Texas, uh, Nevada, Arizona, uh, a lot. That's kind of where most of them are. Sometimes Oklahoma, but usually further West, further South. Um, I really wanted the religious fervor aspect, um, which meant I needed to go earlier. And going earlier meant I needed to go further east because America wasn't fully settled, you know. Uh, so I so I ended up placing it kind of in like a along somewhere west of the Arkansas River, but not too far. So like in Arkansas, Oklahoma, uh, not in Texas. So it's a, it's a little bit less 
of a high desert plain landscape. And I'm still trying to keep that like super austere feeling. And there's a way in which I'm actually not going that far into the landscape of what I should expect over there because I don't, I don't want to be influenced by it. <laughs> but definitely it's sort of like, what's the place? What's the time? What do we see? And the, the landscape that I've created is sort of unfolding as the story goes. Like what happens when you go up the river? What happens when you go down the river? What happens when you go west of the river? You know, what's out there? It will kind of uh, build itself out as we as we get there. Yeah. So we're at nine, almost 10,000 words now. Do you have kind of an idea of, is this like a quarter of what you think the story will? I mean, we always know these things end up longer than we think, but how far into it do you think you are? Are we already at 10,000? <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I we was are. thinking it would be 20, but realistically, it might be 30. We might be a third of the way there uh, yeah. because it is a little bit, it is more than a simple love story. Uh, this is, you know, Westerns usually have, you know, the fate of a town or a cattle drive or like an evil takeover by a robber baron. You know, these are sort of the tropes of what drives a Western. So in this case, it is the destiny of the town, not just the two lovers uh, oh. we're dealing with. Uh, it's so exciting. Yeah, I know. We gotta be, I, I got to be careful not to ask you anything that would be... Um too much of a too much of a spoiler because we have we basically have four chapters so we have Noel in this in his present kind of circumstances and we get a sense of like what his everyday life is like I love this I always love this in RPF or actually AUs in fan fiction where you bring something canonical into this AU so Noel's got this foot injury which if you've done your research you probably know that Noel did have a foot injury um, from working I think on a job site with his dad mm-hmm and actually, yeah, that comes back in Transistor. Um, but we get that here with this Noel. I love that sort of RPF AU, just those little real life things that you bring in there. Mm -hmm. um, I, this is just a small thing I thought of. Like, I love the way that Noel's relationship has with this horse that he has, which you get, I think, in the first scene. So he's, he's like, has to take care of a lot of stuff on this job kind of, I don't know what you call it, a job site or a cattle mm -hmm. sort of whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, he personally has a horse that he has had to obtain in order to sort of get this job and function out on the frontier. Um, and he and this horse like do not get along. I feel like this horse who we know later as Naomi, um, but who at first is uh, the, the old bitch, as <laughs> Noah calls her. Right. Um, do you remember that feeling like an essential character? Because she feels very essential to me at this point in the story. She, yeah, she's absolutely an essential character. Um, there's a few few examples there for the horse as a character. Um, you know, my back background with Westerns is more in, in movies than in books. So in uh, the original True Grit, there's this amazing um you know, the girl whose name I'm losing right now has this pet, this horse that she loves called Blackie, right? And the character mm. Rooster Coburn ends up riding the horse to death in order to save her life, to get her back yes. to the doctor. And it's this sort of like um, necessary sacrifice, right? Um, and she knows what he's doing and he just doesn't back down from it. He's like, this is what's going to happen. Um, so there's that like heroic little horse moment. And then the other one yeah. uh, was um, Dances with Wolves. There was this, oh, yeah. this amazing uh, bond between the main character and his horse, Cisco, right? And I remember, I think probably my dad went to go see that movie in the theater. And that was like his favorite part of the movie was like, ah, oh, Cisco. <laughs> you know, we get the feelings for the horses. I don't think I'm going to kill off Naomi. I don't think that I could bear to do it. But um, that, that idea of the, uh, 
the horse as kind of like kind of the most tender spot uh, for these rough guys is uh, informing. And, and Leah nails it, right, by, uh, by giving her this real uh, sweetheart of a name, which uh, just, uh, shoot, that name really came out of the blue. You know, the, the character Liam, you know, said her name is Naomi. And I was like, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, again, I don't feel as though I'm making things up. You know, they happen and then I write them down. Um, but, you know, Liam, Liam gets it. You know, because there is a way in which horses, uh, they, you know, they need to be liked and they need to be understood and accepted and, and they need to be bossed around a bit. But absolutely, you can get into a permanent misunderstanding with a horse and it will last <laughs> like they will keep on. You know, they're going to hang on with that until until you're the one to make the shift. So, I, uh, you know, she's definitely going to continue as a character. Yeah, that is it's an amazing scene too. Like I think it's not our first introduction to Liam because Noel goes to this basically after work one day, all, all the sort of work hands head to this big revival tent, which mm-hmm. is where we see our other characters, mm-hmm. uh, H. Rodman Thompson, mm-hmm. who is Lee, who is the organ player, who is our I believe our Tommy, mm-hmm. if I'm not wrong in yep. saying that. Yes. Um we know hit Liam as Will in this. So we have H. Rodman Thompson and then we have uh Will hold on. Wilson Wendell Thompson. Mm-hmm. So obviously Wilson, we will, and that kind of mirrors William a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, and that's yeah. There's there's hints that like that it's not just a coincidence that that is similar to the name William or Liam as we know our Liam mm-hmm. at. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, where was it going? Oh yeah. So we first see Liam uh, or Will in the revival tent, mm-hmm. um, which feels a lot to me. Did that was that kind of like a almost like a boardwalk scene for you, where like in real life. Noel first sees Liam singing this boardwalk and sort of kind of fandom legend is it like Noel kind of clocked it like this is something special even though he told Liam he kind of sucked on stage but like Noel seeing Liam up on that stage feels to me a bit like what it might have felt like for him to see Liam first sing at the boardwalk mm-hmm. it could be just me reading into it um but uh, yeah, there was that at first interesting. But I lo- I was just gonna bring up the scene that they first really interact, which is where Noel's basically dealing with Naomi, his horse, the old bitch, and she kicks him in the knee, or she or she nearly does. She basically he he kind of has the sense that like she could have crippled him, but she doesn't. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Liam steps in and just like has this little dance with the horse and kind of a conversation he's talking to her Mm -hmm. and she immediately kind of gets on his level and he's able to calm her down and it's like this sweet sweet moment that that was i just wanted to comment that was just like a wonderful scene and uh, it feels kind of important to like have that as like their first interaction of noel kind of seeing liam as this strange creature almost yeah yeah he's kind of he's kind of this otherworldly being and to take take a step back to the tent revival thing uh yes but it's more like if if Liam had gone to main road on his own they've got their mm. show he is i mean the kind of the middle of nowhere but he is a professional at that point i mean he's good at what he does they they've been doing it he's already a showman when Noel first sees him so there's that difference but that, yeah when they encounter each other out in the um in in the grass with a horse it was important to me that they don't meet as two ordinary guys chit-chatting right 
because if that were the case, they may never have gotten to that point of intimacy. There's something otherworldly about about their encounter from the beginning. It's kind of like outside the bounds of a normal everyday persona. So I really wanted them to have that sort of otherness aspect that comes from encountering each other way out and also kind of mediated by the animal, right? Like, so Noel is kind of seeing who Liam is. You know, he's seen this very constructed, very social, performative Liam up on the stage, right? But now he's seeing this really untutored and spontaneous side. And that is kind of what allows them to, to begin to come together. Ah, yeah, I love that. And I love that scene. And this this might be a spoiler. Um, we do know in the in these four chapters, Noel actually does get a guitar. So it's like a very familiar thing for us, obviously, as Oasis fans. So he's in this card game and he manages to sort of win this guitar. If you can tell us, is that going to play into the plot at all? Like Noel's kind of picking up this guitar and will his relationship with the music kind of, you think, play any part in the narrative? I think it will have a role in his character development. Um, I think it will be important to recognize that like being a musician or being a traveling musician as a sort of career path didn't necessarily exist in that place and time. So um, there, there really isn't a way in which, and they became rock stars, can translate yeah. directly to this environment. But it is going to be a part of Noel's sort of personal growth because he's very much um, wandering, right? You know, he's, um, we kind of get a sense of this very um, scrappy coming up for him, not bringing up because he wasn't really brought up, but very much kind of like a hard scrabble background. So he's, he's still very much becoming. And I think the guitar will be a part of whatever it is that he's becoming. Yeah. Yeah, he feels um, part of it is the landscape and part of it is for obvious reasons that he doesn't have family around. But he feels like even though he's not throwing himself a pity party, he feels lonely, which feels kind of um, authentic for the Noel that we kind of know and love. It's like he's in his head all the time anyway, even though he has family in real life. But I thought that felt very appropriate for Noel that he's just like a loner and he's got kind of no one. And so we get like Liam coming in. It already feels to me like Liam is a redemptive kind of influence as far as like his love, like not even all the obvious, like religion thing, obviously like, you know, feels not, I mean, not redemptive because this feels like such a performative kind of like mm-hmm. fakey thing. It's like a show that they have, but yeah, Liam already feels like this little angel coming in and it's just like ugh, so gratifying right. to see him. Right. Well, and one of the things that I want to do in this story is, um, is keep, the religious aspect from being completely false and inauthentic. It is a construct. The other reference that I think is driving kind of my thinking behind this story is a Robert Duvall film called The Apostle, which is one of my all-time favorites. Should definitely, everyone should see it. Robert Duvall grew up Pentecostal and hated it. Uh, hated everything about it. And as an adult, he decided to challenge himself to make a film that took that sort of faith uh, seriously mm-hmm. without hatred or mockery. Um, and he wrote, directed, produced, and starred in The Apostle. Um, 
And it, it is amazing. I really highly recommend it. But it's sort of, he really goes right for the idea that, you know, that charismatic religion is weird, weird shit. And yet they are not bad people, <laughs> you know, and, and they are weird, but they are sincere, you know? Yes. Um, and so there are these, you know, these balances, these dichotomies. So I don't intend to demonize that religious aspect. What I'm hoping to do, uh, and you can probably tell I, I grew up devoutly religious, is to kind of show it in its complexity. That's where I hope to go with that. I mean, I think it's the story is in good hands. I can tell already, and yeah, it's interesting to me because I didn't grow up religious at all. But my father was a was a preacher's kid, Assembly of God, which I believe falls under the kind of Pentecostal kind of evangelist mm -hmm. um, umbrella. So, like when he was growing up, which had been in like you know fifties, sixties, um, they weren't allowed to do fun things. It was a very kind of strict um, upbringing, and he was one of three brothers actually. And um, it's it's interesting because yeah, it religion is kind of still a part of him, but he purposefully didn't like make us go to church. Cause I think he found it pretty like traumatic, like having to go to church, like three times a week, you know, being the preacher's kid. And then, and then he would talk about when, like they still would have revivals, you know, uh, when he was growing up once in a while. Um, and it was just like every single night. And so, and it's a lot of kind of fire and brimstone talk and cause they're trying to save you. Like they really, speaking of the sincerity thing, it's like the reason it's so fervent is like, they really believe that the fate of your soul is in kind of your, your hands and God's hands and their hands, hopefully to help you get there. So yeah, I don't know to treat it with some, like some seriousness and not just a mock it, I think is like serves the story really well. And hopefully people are reading this before I'm like spoiling this story, but I, I think it's worth bringing up that like, there's an element, I don't know if you call it magical realism, but like Liam, I don't know if you, we, we can cut this out too, if you want to keep it a surprise, but Liam has the ability to heal like yep. for real as Noel finds out. What, what was that choice to like make that kind of fantastic, bring that element into this very like grounded sort of story? You know, I think I, I think I wanted that to be a part of him from the beginning, you know, if it could be religion and God, it could be magic, whatever. Um, but he is otherly mm. <laughs> in, in whatever way that we want to call that, uh, he is. And it's very important to me that part of him not being a charlatan, right. Not being just like hosing people, um, is that he's sincere about it yeah. and, and it is real for him. Right. And that's where the faith healing comes from, whether no matter how, you know, you know, by what mechanism it works, which I don't really know. Um, it is real. Now, Tommy may not know or care. And um, and I just want to give a shout out that name. Uh, H. Rodman Thompson is a is a rearrangement of the name of a guy I used to work with like all of those parts of his name were just combined a little differently, who actually was a preacher's kid from Oklahoma in the, mm. in the fifties or so. And, um, this guy had been a financier. He had worked on wall street. He's a big money guy. And usually I don't like those people. 
<laughs> but I liked yeah. him right away. Um, and it, after like six or eight months, I realized that it was because he had grown up a preacher's kid in like a, like a fundamentalist church. And I was like, that's yeah. why this guy feels familiar to me. Like his crazy is my crazy. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> the, same, the same background. So that's kind of a, a shout out to him. Uh, but yeah, so to treat, to treat that seriously was really important to me. Um, I don't want it to be, um, nothing in this story should be a caricature, hopefully, by the time it's done. Oh, that's amazing. I I found myself wondering, um, do you think that this story would, I feel like some people would have um, a thought that like, oh, it's like kind of so far out of the oasis, thick world where we're used to, that likely you could kind of file the serial numbers off and turn this into an original story. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it would work in the same way? Because like that stuff that we've kind of talked about, like sort of the reflections of Liam's real personality, and I feel like it really lends it something that makes kind of RPF special. But on the other hand, you probably could, you know, do original fiction. But what do you think? Do you think something would be lost in that if you took out the Oasis element? I don't think necessarily. Um, I I think probably it could be done. Uh, I think probably this is verging pretty closely on original fiction. Um, the one issue being that if you wanted to publish it uh, sort of in the mainstream, you know, that you couldn't probably have them be brothers. Uh, and that you know, it'd be sort of like a redoing of the story because they they are brothers in this story, and that's um they just don't know it yet. So that time, yeah, that time will come, and so I imagine that probably probably that element would have to be uh, taken out. I don't know, to be honest, whether I mean, so much of the power of the gay stories that I grew up with was in the taboo, right? It was in the violation. It was in sort of like the um the striking outward from the established norm, you know, queer stories are essentially otherness stories. Mm. I don't know whether the otherliness of queer stories is beginning to lose its cultural power or not. As we come towards, uh, you know, more integration of gay people and gay work, um, as we're getting a sort of broader acceptance of sort of alternate masculinities and gender presentations. I don't know whether those stories still carry their same cultural force or not. I could be writing a very um, trite and passe story right now. I don't know. <laughs> it's just the story that I want to write. <laughs> you know, is, is, would that story have something to say uh, to audiences, general audiences? I don't know. I did find when I started my research that uh, kind of the first assumptions that we have about, uh, you know, gayness or queerness in the American West isn't necessarily what was the case. It was actually fairly common and well understood that some men had relationships with men, sometimes for very long times. Uh, and it was much, we didn't, they didn't have uh, straight and gay identities. Sex with sex, you either have sex with people of your same gender or opposite gender. It doesn't necessarily have to say anything about who you are. Very different, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, especially out on the frontier when there's not really established law as much, um, especially if you're out in the territories, like there's maybe a ranger that you somebody could summon if, you know, but like otherwise you're, you're just really out on your own. And like news doesn't travel fast. So like culturally, I assume... 
like, yeah, we just don't probably don't know. Like probably a lot of that's been lost, but like there's probably pockets of culture where it just like it sort of develops on its own and you don't have the homogenized culture right well, and morality probably yeah it was well for one a lot of people went west because they didn't fit right and so mm-hmm. you would you know there's all sorts of like gender bending going on out there there are two ways to interpret it you know some people will say that it was a you know a surprisingly um flexible and inclusive time and place. Some people will say that there was actually a whole lot of sex slavery going on where, you know, sort of the youngest and most feminine men would be press ganged into a sex slave situation. I'm not really sure which is the correct one there, but it definitely is true that sort of uh, gender transgression and, you know, homosexuality, gender nonconformity, let us say, and, and homosexual behavior existed and were, you know, well understood to exist. And there wasn't this sense of sort of immediate punishment Uh, that we think of in our, you know, when we think of sort of like a Victorian era that didn't, that wasn't happening Mm. out there for the most part. So I did have to kind of alter the way I told the story uh, because of that, you know, like as my research is emerging, I'm kind of like, whoa, adjust here and adjust there to sort of match the actual setting. Yeah. Yeah. What's been kind of the toughest thing about writing this story for you so far? (sighs) Um... Always when I actually start doing the writing, you know, when you're starting the writing, you're looking at that blank page, there's this period of just excruciatingness, you know, where it just really feels like you're just banging your head against the bricks. And it's like one, one word, one sentence, and it might be a shitty sentence, but it's really just you get something on the page. Even if it's shitty, you get something on the page. And I think that's the one thing that people don't People who say they wish they could write, what they don't understand is it's all shitty in the beginning. It all feels shitty for every writer. Every writer is convinced that they are doing shitty work. That's just the way it is. You just have to be okay with doing shitty work. You keep on writing and, and, you know, maybe it's not shitty or maybe it gets better. We don't know. Uh, But you have to go through that period of like, oh God, this is terrible. And it's so hard. Why is it so hard? Um... So once you get through that, usually I get on a roll where I'm like, yes, this is brilliant. I really, like, <laughs> you know, I really, uh, you know, I kind of get a little up on myself and I'll be like, hey, sister, guess what? I'm totally freaking brilliant. <laughs> yes. Um, finding the way the pieces fit is hard. You know, I don't know the major plot points. I know the sort of major beats you know the sort of uh the way that i think of my work is there's a theater term the beats which are sort of like the the units of emotion that happen on stage right Mm. and that's the way i plan my work is kind of like the the units of of emotional happening so i know what i want the major beats to be how they happen I don't know necessarily. So usually it's finding your way kind of through the deep water, you know, from one rock to stand on to the next rock to stand on. You don't know what's in between them. You don't know how to get there. And the only way to get there is by sitting down and kind of staring that piece of paper in the eyeball for a really long time. Yeah, it is like the worst part, but also like exciting when you kind of break through and then you go back and read it. And you're, yeah, yeah, I find that too. It's like these hills of like, you're like, Oh, I am, I'm a golden god. I'm so brilliant. This is amazing. And then maybe you look at it the next day and you're like, oh, that's just <laughs> shit. <laughs> but usually, yeah, if you work at it 
um, either. I mean, sometimes you get those magic times where you sit down and it just comes mm -hmm. out and it's like, yes, this is the story. This is it. But yeah, sometimes you kind of have to work it into place and um, mm -hmm. it's a little more difficult. But yeah, I always <laughs> find that exciting. Um, well, would you like to talk about Clint Boone for a little bit? Yes. Let's talk about Clint. Transistor is not one of the first uh, stories I read from you because obviously I was like, obsessed with just Liam and Dole. And I saw that this one was tagged with Clint. And I was like, oh, I know who Clint is. But um, I'm just, I think I was just like, just on a tear with just like, all I want to see is Liam and Dole. That's all I want to read about. But I can't remember if I clicked on this on my own, or I had seen somebody mm -hmm. bragging about it on Tumblr. But I also knew that it's like one of the longest stories in the fandom. And like, that's one of the things I think this fandom is lacking is long form storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so I was excited about that. And um, yeah. And just kind of speaking of coming off that, the point you were just talking about of like knowing the beats of a story, this story is, I think different from your other two in that you're working in a, in a timeline that has, you know, besides the, like whatever you want to interpret about Liam and Dahl's relationship and Nolan Clint's relationship, whatever happened, whatever that is, you're working in kind of a set timeline, like, Oasis isn't a thing yet, mm -hmm. but we know it's going to be. And we know that the spiral carpets are going where they're going. So this is unique in this kind of box that you're working within. Um, but yeah, to, to start out, why don't we just, let me just ask you, like, how did you, uh, how did the story come to start? With oh, you? great question. So I think that along with everyone else, I got familiar pretty early uh, with those images uh, Paul Gallagher published in his book, right? There's one of him one of no about to kiss a man. Um, That's one of my, actually just to, just because you brought that up, I have to say, uh -huh. yeah, I have Paul's book right here, brothers and the, the pictures uh, right there. I believe. And that's, Graham. He says it's Clint. It is Graham Lambert. Yep. Okay. So it is Graham in this picture. And so like Paul Gallagher, first of all, he's like, if you get into Lamondal, at some point you go, oh, there's an older brother named Paul. And then you see a picture of Paul. He looks remarkably sort of like this mm -hmm. weird hybrid of Lamondal. And then you like listen to a podcast episode. And it, to me, it's just hysterical because he's got the same kind of like Northern humor, but he's less... Um, I don't know, I want to say controlled or put together, but like he's sort of not necessarily funnier, but sort of sillier than Noel. Maybe that's sort of what I'm going for, but like more normal than Liam. So he's kind of like in between, but he's got a very funny, dry sense of humor. And so, yes, this picture that GB's talking about is a very <laughs> wild picture that you would not expect to see in a normal biography about your favorite band it's noel and uh graham lambert from the spiral carpets and they are just like mid canoodle like there's hands on crotches and thighs they're about to kiss there's a hand on the back of his neck and paul geller's caption is although he mistakes this as clint boone he says just good friends <laughs> Is like, and that's also the first photo that you see in this picture, and it just strikes me as like Paul is just taking the Mickey out of his brother right here, yeah. and that's way to just straight out your brother in the international press in 1996. Which, again, coming back to this wild disconnect between mainstream Oasis fans and people who see the the Jesus thing, or even that Noel is maybe not totally straight. Uh, an interviewer straight up asked Noel about this picture, and he's like, it looks like our kissing, but we're not. 
And most fans seem to take that at face value, which is like just absurd. Like they are almost about to take their clothes off in that, but like it's so intimate and it's just like, what? So yes, I can see how that picture there would maybe inspire you into this coming right, to fruition. Right. Well, there's there's that picture with the kiss. And then if you look at the picture on the second half of the page, it's Noel and Clint coming downstairs. They're on their way downstairs. They're holding hands and they each have like a duffel bag over their shoulders. It's so cute. Like they just look like boyfriends. They, well, yes. <laughs> look, <laughs> look at their face. Look at their faces. Clint's, you know, Noel looks a little wary. He's a little uncertain. He's kind of, he looks a little shy. He's not letting go of the hand, but he kind of, you know, they're standing at a distance. He looks a little uncertain. And Clint's expression is like, that's right. That's my boy. That's right. Like, no, like, no apologies here. Yes, we are coming downstairs from our bedroom with our shoulder bags full of our stuff that we slept, you know, like we, we are coming out of our room together. That's what that picture is. If that was a man and a woman, you would have no question. That is a couple who just spent the night together coming out of their room. That's what that is. Um, So I was really fascinated by that and by the role that he seemed to play. Liam Noel has some really interesting sort of cameo appearances of Clint in some of their fic. Um, And I don't remember the one off the top of my head, but that that really caught my attention. And and the more I turned it over in my head, the more I was just sort of fascinated. There was that footage in Supersonic. And then about that same time that I saw that, there came to my attention these, there's a couple of photographs of, of Clinton, Noel in bed together. And I'll send you the right. link if you want. It took me a little while to find out when and where they were um, where they were taken. It was actually 1991, I think, in Scotland. And it's like they're in bed together. Clint is very sleepy. He's barely awake. He doesn't have a shirt on. And, and Noel appears to have a shirt on. And he's kind of like more aware of the camera. He's kind of like looking at the camera um, sticking out his tongue and then i think in the second photo clint sort of has like his arm possessively around him you know with this sleepy face and and clint's expression in particular is just so soft he just he looks like a man in love he looks like a man in love and there's this interview which i think was in 2006 i can send you the link to that too where they discussed this photo clint posted those photos on uh I don't remember the radio station he was working with at the time. I think it was XFM uh, in 2006. So he put these photos in front of Noel on national radio and said, here are some old photos of us. Oh, um, Noel was in the interview with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were doing an interview together like they, they as a run-up to a big show that was going on later that night. And, and here's what Noel says. He says, oh, look at us. Oh my God. And then there's this long moment of silence and he goes, look at the hair on your arms. And Clint goes, Clint goes, yeah, none on my back though. <laughs> <laughs> and then they just go on. <laughs> there was like this total, total like exes moment, right? There's these, these moments where you're with your ex and you're like, yeah, oh, you're still hot. <laughs> 
Yeah. And they just, they totally have this moment of like acknowledging, you know, that like, I'm noticing, I remember being in bed with you and God, that was so cute. And look at your body. And, and they just kind of accept it and they go on. And, and I was just like, what, what, what is this? What is this situation? And in particular, who is this guy? What is this guy? What is his head like? Because when I started to, and now you're seeing me sort of go off the deep end, right? When I started to research Clint Boone, it's really, really interesting. Um, it becomes clear very early on uh, that the Inspiral Carpets, as far as I'm concerned, they weren't all that great. They weren't particularly talented. Um, their songs were not that great. And yet, looking in the context of the time, they had an absolutely massive career. They, they, were, they had a big career. It's mostly forgotten now, but they were at the top of the charts for years in the UK. They traveled around the world. So it's like, how did they get this far? And what you see in the narrative is that Clint was absolutely relentless. This is what people talk about when they talk about Clint is that he would walk up to anybody and make you listen to his band. He would like hand build clocks <laughs> and deliver them to like record label heads, like weird shit to get people's attention. He would do anything. He, he like graffiti tagged his own logo everywhere, you know. Is that that cow? The cow, which is silly, but whatever. It was like absolutely relentless and shameless in his determination to get that band seen and heard. Um, and the work ethic was incredible. The, the drive, uh, the ability to put in the time was really critical to their success. So you can sort of see these characteristics that, that Noel always had. You can start to see where they come from, right? And so I, I was like, I got to know. I gotta know, and in particular, this uh, the the footage that's in Supersonic of uh, of Noel flogging Clint became more fascinating to me the further I researched because Clint was absolutely the dictator in that band. So it was essentially the Inspiral Carpets was Clint and Graham. They mm. were the decision makers. Uh, Tom Hingley, the Inspiral Car uh, Carpet singer, had zero importance in that band. It, in most interviews, he doesn't even speak. Wow. Um, there are interviews, which is four Inspiral Carpets sitting as shadows in the background and Clint Boone sitting in a chair in the spotlight talking. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It, it is insane that the lead singer was ignored, and that's because it was Clint's band. So we can look at that footage in Supersonic and understand that absolutely nothing happened with the Inspiral Carpets that Clint did not approve. And later on, I heard him say that he provided that footage. He was happy to do it. He's like, they asked me for footage. I gladly gave them. So like he handed over that footage of his roadie flogging him in his underwear in a room full of people while taking a telephone call. Yeah, that's wild that Clint handed it over. It's also wild that Noel would have definitely had to approve that going in. So Noel's okay with it. He absolutely did. So it's like, what is what is this? What kind of guy does this kind of stuff? And that was really why I started writing 
uh, and there are all of these other, you know, weird sort of um, sort of conflicting things that are also true about Clint. Like he has six kids. He loves kids. He loves babies. He loves animals. His kids were born at home. He caught his babies in a pool. He's homeschooled his kids. And sort of the more I found out about Clint, the more he dovetailed with, you know, sort of my own personal history. So I really needed to start exploring who he was. And that was where I started with Transistor. And that's a very long way, pardon, (laughs) of saying I started to explore this situation having literally no idea where I was going with Transistor. I just really needed to explore the characters in the story kind of emerged one chapter at a time, one week at a time. And, um, you know, for the first three or four weeks, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. You know, I was still writing a chapter a week and I was like, I have, I have no idea what I'm doing with this or why I am really starting to fall in love with this character though. <laughs> like I am really getting sweet on this character. Like he is yeah. fantastic. And then like by, you know, chapter, whatever, I was kind of like, oh my God, I'm just so in love with this story and these characters. Like I love them so much. And that actually right now is one of my biggest paralyses is that I love them so much. Pushing the story forward is going to have to make them less happy than they are right now. And it's very painful for me to do that. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of where we're at now, the end of chapter uh, 14, yeah, 14, it's Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, we're skipping it we can kind of do a brief outline of this, but, but basically uh, Graham has just asked Noel to be a roadie. So he's just pulled Noel kind of out of his shitty job that he hates. And they're Mm going to go kind of on the road and Mm -hmm. make their rock dreams come true. And it's like this triumphant like hug. So I can Mm -hmm. see why writing the next chapter is going to be tough because it's like the road almost downhill. Although it's the road uphill for Oasis, it's like the downhill of like, Clint and Noel as a relationship and that will be difficult (laughs) yeah it will be but writing writing that place this this story involved and does involve an absolutely insane amount of research Uh, and I have this thing that happens to me fairly often where I will write something and then later on at some point discover that it's canon Uh, oh yeah I'm not surprised yeah so for example in Peggy I wrote that they had a half sibling who lived down the street, a little girl with red hair who lived around the corner. Months later, I found that there is in fact a sibling, a little girl with reddish hair. That's crazy. Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff like that in Transistor as well. You know, like I have them listening to Dusty Springfield on the radio. And then later on, I hear Clint naming Dusty Springfield as one of his, you know, all time favorite albums, you know, Dusty in Memphis. There's a lot of stuff like that. But the research is very intense. And there's some stuff that there are errors because I found them out later. Clint isn't an only child. He's one of three. Uh, my my favorite error is uh, I have Clint driving a Ford Cortina. He didn't drive a Ford Cortina. Graham Lambert drove a Ford Cortina. Shit. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. There's just a lot of stuff like that. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So you've answered like actually several um, of my questions here. So, well, actually, let me back up and just say, so basically this story, we've been talking about it without really kind of outlining it. Actually, let me just read real fast your like summary because sure. I think it, it kind of grabs you and it kind of like it's good at setting the tone and the place and the time of the story. <laughs> so I'll okay. just read this. 
Summer of 1988, Manchester, England. The rave scene was exploding and drugs were everywhere. The period would later be called the Second Summer of Love. In February, more than 20,000 people marched through Manchester in protest of Section 28, a piece of Thatcher legislation that effectively banned public acknowledgement that homosexuality existed. On May 30th, the Stone Roses played an anti-Section 28 benefit at the International 2. It was there, one day after his 21st birthday, that Noel Gallagher met Graham Lambert. Meanwhile, Clint Boone had been hustling in Manchester bands for years. He designed t-shirts, hand-painted demo jackets, hung banners, created bubble-saturated dreamscapes on a shoestring, ran a recording studio, played in or managed a dozen bands. He joined the Inspiral Carpets by showing up to rehearsal uninvited. He ultimately took them to become one of the biggest bands in England. And somewhere in all that was Noel Gallagher. So I feel like it obviously it gives you time, place, and all that stuff. It gives you a sense of who Clint is in real life. And I think that's extremely well reflected here. Like the whole story, Clint is just hustling constantly, all of that. And I do love that we see it's like part of the fascination if you're an Oasis fan is like you're not in Noel's head at all. We're always in Clint's point of view. But watching Noel watch Clint is great. And it's like you see all these seeds of what explains how Oasis will function later, which is that Noel is the sole songwriter. He understands how the money works and the song credits, writing credits work. And he understands um, the direction that he wants the band to go. And he understands that this whole democracy thing um, does not work, which actually you get that point across. You you do make a point that, um, so there's a scene where Graham and Clint are in the car, I think on the way to make the record deal or potentially sign with mm-hmm. um, the record label that they're talking to. And mm-hmm. you kind of go through this like explanation. Actually, I might read, I know I just read, but I, if you're okay, I might read an, that excerpt. Yep. Okay, so I won't read the whole thing, but basically they're in the car, they're on the way to sign this record deal, and Noel's kind of in the back listening, and um, Clint is explaining it, and he's explaining how their current singer, Steve, is actually not on any of the paperwork. So here's Noel. And I I never know whether to try the accent or not. I probably won't, although I'll probably slip into something of a half bad English accent, so we'll see how this goes. It's all good. Uh, So here's Noel. Fuck me. You did the dirty on a mate? Well, yeah, but no, if you knew the number of good bands who die because of internal conflicts, I'm not doing that. You can't lose your career to one person. The ones on the papers have to be the ones you can trust. Is Steve a bad apple, though? Clint thought. I think he wants to control the creative process, but he doesn't want to contribute to it. He doesn't see why, if we're the ones writing, we drive the direction of the band. Why? Noel asks. How else would it be? Clint looked at him in the mirror. It can be hard for a singer to see what the other people in the band are contributing, he said. Graham snorted. That's diplomatic. Well, I never met a singer who didn't think he was the most important person in the band, Clint admitted, and I think he's upset that I get paid twice, to be honest. Graham looked at him in surprise. Is he? Wait, you do? Noel asked. Well, I work twice, Clint said. He could see by Noel's expression that he didn't understand. Look, I'm the manager, and I'm also a band member. That's how it works. 
First, a band pays its expenses. Then management takes 20%. Then the rest is split equally among the band. Wait a fucking minute. So you're telling me that if I'm Charlie Watts, I make the same money as Mick Jagger? Well, no, because Mick Jagger writes and Charlie doesn't. Songwriting credits are a whole different pool, and that's where the real money is. But if you can imagine a band where writing credits are either split equally or nobody writes anything, yeah, that's the way it would be. But if you're in a band and you write most of the songs and on top of that you manage, that could end up being a lot of money, Noel said thoughtfully. If you're successful, yeah, it could. Noel looked at Graham. Don't that bother you at all? He demanded. Graham laughed. I don't want to fucking do it. I just want to play the tunes, and I don't mind paying him so I can do it. Without a good manager, you're still sitting in the pub on a Tuesday night. Do you know what I mean? So that's like a great kind of like, aha, Noel Gallagher's band managing slash songwriting credit 101. Like he is, and you see that later in that meeting with the record label, he is like tuned into everything that Clint is doing in that record label meeting. So yeah. And again, just like sick amounts of research that went into those conversations when they go to that shop in York. I actually found photographs of that building, which are, you know, destroyed now, you know, to, to know what it looked like, but yeah, absolutely to, to it, it's um, understanding where Noel came from, understanding the characters. Graham Lambert really does seem to be like that. He's kind of a, a really, really soft personality. Um and for me, I think that one of the reasons why I was so fascinated with Clint, you know, we tend to become fascinated with characteristics that are underdeveloped in ourselves. And uh, Clint is the total lack of shame that Clint displays is very fascinating to me. And I happened to be able to meet him earlier this summer. And it's true. He is very, very, very unselfconscious. You can see it from across the room. He is not worried about uh, whether or not he looks cool. And of course, that itself is is pretty cool, right? Yeah. Um, so there's the sort of lack of fear and shame coupled with a very strong sense of direction about what he wants. Now, I grew up religious, as I mentioned, right? I grew up evangelical Christian and I grew up a woman. And there are all of these sort of kind of prohibitions and tattoo, uh, like taboos about wanting things uh, or about the will of God, right? Or sort of like yeah. not directing your own life and being open to the will of God, uh, you know, not being a bitch. Um, you know, I used to get in a lot of trouble for having a problem with authority. Um, <laughs> And I think one of the reasons that Clint was so fascinating to me, it was also a character that the characteristic that Noel definitely displays uh, is of sort of unashamedly wanting what you want yeah. and going for it. This sort of lack of inner conflict or self-doubt. Now, I know that we live in an age where a lot of people, they are racked by uh, self-doubt, fear, anxiety, second-guessing. Um, a lot of us are sort of paralyzed, right? We're sort of paralyzed by indecision and self-doubt. And in particular, um, I do a series of relationships with men who felt very, uh, they have a lot of resentment 
because they felt very powerless. Hmm. You know, people who tended to be depressive, uh, people who had trauma they hadn't dealt with, uh, and they just really kind of were tied down energetically. These people were never moving forward in their lives because uh, they were just kind of all bound up in the past. So for me, the writing, researching and writing Transistor was this real um, exploration. I have this internet sort of spiritual guru that I really love. Her name is Carolyn Elliott, and she talks about a united will, which is that when you can let go of all of your second guessing and undermining, if you can accept the fact that what you want is maybe bad and want yeah. it anyways, if you can stop judging yourself for wanting what you want, if you can stop fearing that what you want is going to make you a bad person or is going to make somebody dislike you, because somebody's always going to dislike you, right? Then you, you kind of lose the chains. You become very powerful because you have no fear anymore. That's kind of what Noel was talking about, right? When you wake up on the floor and you know you're not going to die, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. Yeah. And for me, that was what was so significant about Clint is at some point, who knows where it was. Maybe it was when he was a child, you know, because his parents were really loving, or maybe it was some point later on. He just decided that he wasn't going to be ashamed of who he was and what he wanted anymore and becomes this incredibly sort of powerful personality with the ability to transform the circumstances around him, uh, not necessarily through manipulation and bullying people, but just through being who he is. So it's been a real process of discovery for me. It makes me think of um, not even Clint's behavior, but maybe where he learned it from, at least in this story, there's a really beautiful scene of him essentially having, he's forced to come out to his parents because he had a boy in his room and they were mm -hmm. getting uh down and dirt well i shouldn't say they were being intimate they were having sex in his room his mother walks <laughs> in and the way that um the scene works is that um she tells clint's dad what's happened and clint basically just starts to pack his bags he's like putting his stuff on his bike i think outside uh and there's just this beautiful scene i wanted to ask you sort of where that inspiration came from where Clint's mother, and in this story, he is an only child, and so this is their only son. Um, she, Clint's dad is having tea, I think, at the breakfast table. She mm -hmm. takes his mug, throws it against a wall, and it shatters. And according to Clint, this is like very uncharacteristic of his sort of like sweet, kind of agreeable mother. And she tells his father, that's broken now, and you can never fix that. And Clint at first thinks that maybe she's talking about how he's ruined kind of his relationship with his parents, but actually Clint's father immediately understands that she is talking about if you let your son get on that bike and go away, you're never going to get this back again. It's like, I basically sort of tear up thinking about it right now. It's like Clint's dad takes his bags, gets his stuff from outside and just brings it back. So they don't talk about it, but it's just, it's settled. And then everything's sort of, agreeable after that if not not to say that we know that Clint's dad is okay with it but mm -hmm. he decides to pick his son over this gay thing that he would have a mm -hmm. problem with so I just I just want to mention that scene because it's beautiful thank you I I love that scene and that is one where uh you know very little rational thought went into it I sort of saw it unfold 
but I didn't necessarily make uh, decisions about it. I will say, you know, Clint Boone is a real person. His mother is still alive. Uh, her name is Marie. She has a very active Twitter account. She is no. hilarious. I have to follow she her. She is hilarious. Now, as far as I can tell, real life Clint Boone is in fact bisexual. He appears to be very well integrated. His mom appears to know and have no problems at all. Um, you know, like she, she'll post like Bronski beat small town boy and be like, Clint Boone, I'm playing your favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> I had, and there is no indication that Clint's dad was ever anything other than supportive. They're like, you know, his dad has passed now, but he, um, adores him and will occasionally post pictures of him and talk about how amazing he is. There's a picture of Cyril Boone. He's probably in his sixties. Clint is about 30 and, uh, and Clint's dad has on an Inspiral Carpets t-shirt. So, you know, it's the big cow. It says cool as fuck. Um, <laughs> and he's just like such a proud dad. <laughs> so, so I don't want anyone to ever think that I'm on that, that characterization of, of Clint's dad as a, as a potentially judgmental person is, is fictional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a different time back then. So you sort of, you know, I mean, it could have been, and you definitely dive into like the attitudes towards the LGBT community in this. There's some great scenes where Clint takes Noel to a gay bar for the first time. Mm -hmm. Noel's never been exposed to anything like that. And there's, you go into like the punk culture and sort of the LGBT roots of punk culture. Um, was that something you kind of like stumbled upon in your research um, or did you kind of know that you wanted to dive into that, those kind of subcultures? It was, it was something that I stumbled upon. I was doing a lot of research. Um, there were amazing sort of um, collectives of lesbians living in squats in London at the time. Uh, you know, were like very much alternative kind of modes of society where people are really choosing to live kind of outside, you know, queer punks, uh, you know, taking advantage of what was available to them, uh, using really unusual uh, strategies to, you know, make a go of things. There was a very, um, his, his name was Nikki, but I'm not coming up with his last name now, a gay punk who uh, I think he was in London, was very prominent because he, he was an actual Nazi, I believe. Uh, he was a very, very visible skinhead um, and was gay. And, um, you know, he worked as a, you know, his day affiliations were with skinheads and Nazis. And during the day he was a bouncer, the night he was a bouncer at a gay bar. And you know, some people just knew that this was this was who he was. He ended up dying of AIDS, I think, in the mid '80s. But I really wanted to sort of give tribute to that. Um, this was a real world, and um, you know, there was this sort of universal—not universal. There was a heavy condemnation of LGBTQ people at the time, but there was also this incredibly robust culture of young people which integrated you know there was lgbtq subculture right the the clubs and the bars were there mm. but they were also much more integrated than you might have thought uh you know everyone who was in that early early punk culture in manchester agrees that 
gays were always present. You always knew they were there and they were pretty freely mixing. So I wanted, I wanted to bring that forward as well. There was so much to be fascinated by in that place and time that I really wanted to sort of open the door uh, and all of this I'm trying to think about the best way to access all of the links and resources. I, someone wrote to me when they read that chapter about, you know, uh, Clint meets up with the skinhead later on in the street. He and the Inspirals kind of almost yeah. get into a fight uh, because there's a bunch of skinheads harassing, uh, you know, a pair of women on the street. And someone wrote to me. And was like, I'm so touched that you basically included the lesbians, you know, mm. that you let them show here. And I sent that person a couple links about like, you know, the lesbian involvement in, you know, the, the protests against Clause 28. And her mind was blown because so much of that history uh, has been lost or has been buried. People just don't know, um, yeah. you know, and it's like they they paved the way. Uh, so I'm really, I want people to see not just these amazing characters, but the world they lived in too. Yeah, it's a, it's like, so um, you can tell the research is painstaking and the world building is um, very well done and deliberate. And so it feels like it's an extremely immersive story. So I love that about this story. Um, I wanted to ask you quickly, there, I have a couple of questions, but the title transistor, mm. I, the closest I could come. So there's, um, obviously you have sort of the inspirals, the, the journey of the inspirals and Clint's sort of pushing them towards the record steel and what will be it's sort of a tour and stuff. And then you have Nolan Clint's relationship developing as the story goes along. And of course it's, there's a midpoint in the story where we don't see the act itself, but Clint comes back from their first kind of European tour, which they get this opportunity to suddenly go. And then they're just, and it's their first kind of look at stardom. And then he gets caught up and he cheats on Noel. He sleeps with a groupie and he tells Noel this, and this really throws a wrench into their relationship. Noel is uh, sort of shocked and devastated, but there's a mention where Clint is telling Noel he just like immediately tells him he has to get it off his chest. And there's, I think you mentioned that there's a sound of the transistor from Clint's keyboard or his amp mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. So that was the closest I could find to like the origin of the title. Um, but yeah, what, what's, can you tell us about the title a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Clint's primary instrument is the organ and the organ that he played is a farfisa. I get, I forget the, model name but he's really identified with it um and so when you read about what this instrument is to me it doesn't have the most pleasant sound it's a little sharp i you know i like a hammond everybody loves a b3 yeah. um the farfisa is like i think what the doors played ray manzieri played a, mm. a farfisa and it's got this very like really sharp sound um but when you read about this instrument they always say it's fully transistorized blah 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 uh, and so the, the transistors, when something is transistorized, it has, it has to do with how the sound is transmitted and amplified in the instrument. And of course, these are actual uh, mechanical electronics, you know, they're wires, there's tubes in there. And it has to do with like how the sound is created and then sort of moved outside into an audible way. So transistor is like literally, I, threw the title up there as I was posting 
the first chapter of that story, but it has to do with that sort of, um, you know, there's something sort of sensorial about the way the music and the sound is created that I wanted to sort of touch on. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love, I'm so glad I got to ask you that. Cause I was like, I'm sure this is like some cool underlying thing that I should be getting from this. And I probably could have Googled it and found out and got my own sense, but I hadn't yet. So, mm-hmm. um, I did want to ask you about in this story, obviously it's, it's a primarily Clint and Noel we're, uh, invested in and we're spending all our time with, but Liam is in this story and I have to say, like, it's always fun for me whenever Liam comes into a scene. He's just like always the thing that you look at in the room. He's that sort of sparkly. And you do a great job introducing him here when he just you you kind of forget about Liam because you're in Noel, you're in Clint's head, and Noel never talks about his family, as Clint says. And then you so you sort of it's amazing because most people that come to this story are probably Liam Noel shippers. But mm-hmm. it's like it's so immersive you sort of forget about Liam, which seems impossible. And then all of a sudden he's in the room. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really interesting scene where you can kind of get a sense of, like, Liam and Noel's relationship. And it's either – I we'll see as the story goes along. There, You at least get a sense that something about Liam puts a lot of stress <laughs> on Noel, which you can, like, just Liam's personality without any kind of – sexual tension or anything he seems like kind of like he would uh to put it mildly be a difficult little brother to have um mm-hmm. so that all lines up but um you don't so you see him in that interesting and then he comes back when Noel's in the hospital um i don't know can you talk about kind of liam's function is i mean i get a sense that like there's a there's a great moment in the hospital where clint has to leave because he's come to see Noel, but he's obviously not family and you can't tell anyone that he's his boyfriend. So he has to leave, but Liam gets to stay. And that felt like that moment exactly where Clint's like, Liam gets to say, because he's family. And Clint's very jealous of that. That felt like a particularly important moment and something that is only going to get more prominent, that kind of replacing of Clint by Liam. Could, could you talk about, I guess, Liam in, in this story a little bit, whatever kind of thoughts you have on that? Right. So people have come to me and said, well, it's tagged Liam slash Noel, but I don't see any Liam slash Noel in here yet. So like, is that a thing or is it going to happen or what? And the answer there is yes, but we always, always will stay in Clint's perspective because that's, you know, that's really the grounding of this story. So what Clint sees, hopefully, with Liam is just an increasing sense that something is off, something is not right. And of course, no one is going to, no one is going to leap to these sorts of conclusions that we think about a lot, right? You think about how persistently most people look past uh, those things that, you know, like the Lock Laman kiss or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, imagine, just imagine being the lover, right, of somebody who <laughs> is in that kind of situation. And I think particularly Clint is probably a very jealous and territorial lover. He's very protective. He's not controlling. He's very jealous, Uh, of, you know, of protecting what is his. And so the sense should be that Noel has secrets. Yes. 
we don't know what they are, right? And Clint is kind of like, he's not worried yet, but he's aware that there are secrets and that something is off. He's not an overthinker, right? So he's not going to be sitting around thinking about these things, but something doesn't feel quite right. And as time goes on, you know, there are a number of things that are going to contribute to the relationship becoming more uncomfortable. And that sense of secrecy is one of them. Yeah. May I just say, I, I saw it and I didn't want, like, want to assume like we have no idea what's going on, if, if anything, right now. But I certainly got that kind of sense of unease. And I think you effectively kind of sprinkle it in there without overdoing it because you know that we are in Clint's perspective. So there's a little bit of that dramatic irony where we as the reader are like, oh, you certainly get the sense that Noel has secrets because like the first time you see Liam, Clint's like, you have a brother? And Noel's like, I have two brothers, you know? <laughs> And then, so there's like several things that like stood out to me. One is that like, yeah, as soon as Liam, while Liam's in the room meeting and Graham's just like falling all over himself, he's like, that's your brother. Oh my God. Like, cause the, the, just the look of him is so striking and Graham's just like, just kind of starstruck, which right? is like true to life of people like, can't remember as Graham or somebody else that said the first time they saw Liam, they were like, oh, that kid is a star. Like you could just tell. But Clint, yeah, Clint and Noel go outside and, and Noel just looks immediately ex exhausted, like, which is a strange thing to just have a casual conversation with your brother and it's taking something out of him. And I think later we get after Clint cheats, we get Liam answering the phone where Clint's trying to talk to Noel. And he's like, it's just this like perfect kind of Liam logic of where he's calling Clint like just trigger warning uh, a slur here he's calling clint a faggot but at the same time he's like kind of being like the protective like you can tell that he knows that noel has been cheated on in some way and and yet so he seems protective of noel in this like gay relationship and yet he's like calling clint like a fag. so it's like this very strange reaction already from liam there and of course that hospital which um if you don't if you don't mind i just feel like i have to, it's such a great little end to the chapter the hospital scene um where clint leaves which i mentioned but i just feel like here we go i'll just read this little thing where yes Noel's in the hospital clint's kind of being booted out because he doesn't want to cause the nurse to go nurse ratchet on Noel if she finds out that they're involved and liam of course hates clint's guts and clint just has to leave so clint's walking out the door and liam's like kind of um fussing over Noel. He's just handed him that like Kool-Aid, which is like, oh such a sweet moment. You guys will have to read. I won't read the whole scene. Um, but here we go. Liam was sitting in Clint's spot on the bed now, fumbling with the little plastic straw to make Noel take his pills. Noel watched him with a spaced out look of wonder that he would have been using on Clint if they weren't throwing him out. Clint was suddenly choked with jealousy of this violent, half-witted kid. Liam could stay because they were brothers. He could be there as much as he wanted. Clint had to go away because he was only Noel's faggot lover. But Liam, he could stay all night if he felt like it. They'd probably even let him sleep in the bed. Just because they were brothers. No one would ever even think. Which is obviously a fantastic line in the context of what we as the reader know is probably developing with Liam and Noel. And it's kind of ominous and it's very powerful, so... Mm -hmm. Well done. So I think you've sprinkled the Liam stuff in brilliantly. So I'm like 
super excited to see like where it goes and Clint's reaction to all that. And it's great. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed writing that scene. I really enjoyed that nurse character, Bettina. Bettina. (laughs) With the yellow beehive. That was definitely one where I was like, whoa, where has this person come from? I love her. Um, And, and the, uh, the intensity of Clint's feelings and the confusion, you know, where he wants to be there, but he doesn't want to make the situation worse was a real thing that people encountered. One of the consistent subtexts of this story is that this is taking place at the height of the AIDS crisis. You know, there were people who, you know, they weren't allowed to see their long-term lovers and partners when they were dying because, because their families wouldn't accept them. You know, there was like a kind of an understood, uh, support network system that like when someone died of AIDS in the hospital, their gay and queer friends would sweep into their apartments and take out all evidence Mm -hmm. of their homosexuality. You know, their art collections, their sculptures, their books, their letters, and they would sort of clean it before the family came in. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and, and that would happen multiple times. So you would have, let's say, art objects that had gone through three or four generations of gay and queer men who have died of AIDS and have been posthumously protected uh, by their friends. This is the sort of world that we're living in. And there's a limited number of ways for me to communicate uh, the intensity of of the very rare feel and fear and danger. We live in such a different world now. People who are coming of age as, you know, queer folk now, things may be hard, but it's very difficult to imagine the world that folks were living in then. Very, very different. So I wanted to try and capture just a tiny bit of what illness meant you know, to a couple, they may have been together for years, they may have been very dedicated to each other. But when uh, illness and injury happen, uh, sort of the big wheels of the institutions of society would come to bear upon the couple, and they could be absolutely crushed by what happens when they're subject to those outside forces. And that's one of the things that kind of is building the long term tension of this story is for men who are bisexual, when you look at choosing a same-sex relationship as a bisexual person, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot that goes into making that choice. Uh, and I hope that when gay people and queer and bisexual people are reading this story, I hope that it is ringing these bells for them of saying, you know, like, am I ready for this? Yeah. Am I ready for the implication of making these choices for the person that I love? Am I ready to go off that step? Yeah. It's very, to me, it was a very powerful scene. It's just that kind of like simple, cold, heartbreaking fact that like Clint's in love with Noel and yet he's not allowed in the room. It's just like so stark and just brutal. Um, ugh, yeah. And the fact, so- and the fact that he loves him may hurt him. Yeah. 
you know, he may end up hurting the person he loves if he's not careful. What is the best thing in that situation? I don't know. I'm sure that I, I know that many people did, in fact, choose to, you know, be in the hospital with their people. Everyone went through that differently, but it's a real choice that people really did you know, have to have to make. Yeah. With this story, you kind of mentioned that it's going to be sort of tough emotionally, obviously, to like get into this. Are you excited about doing, like, is the process still fun for you to write the story or is it kind of difficult to like sit down and try and get the next chapter out? Well, the story has been on hiatus for uh, quite a long time. Uh, the way that what I have learned about my process is that my my life has to be pretty stable and pretty steady in order for me to write productively. Mm. Now, the backstory here is um, I'm a single person with four kids, um, and I have been a single person with four kids for about eight years. I'm a homeowner, uh, so you know there's some challenges and some responsibilities. I began writing Transistor, I believe, in March of 2020. It's kind of like the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I believe that I wrote the last, the second to last chapter that, you know, I was kind of trucking right along until chapter 13, which I think was August of 2020. What happened to me shortly after uh, was uh, there was a transition in leadership at my work, and I knew that I needed to leave. Like as soon as I knew that my boss was leaving, I was like, oh, this is not going to be a good place for me to stay after she's mm -hmm. gone. I need to start looking for work immediately. And then the rest of that year was just atrocious. The organization sort of falling apart, me trying to keep them on the, because it's philanthropy, mm -hmm. me trying to keep them on the rails in terms of like, you know, um, compliance with, you know, legal stuff, looking for another job um, as a person who provides for a family, looking to replace a family income with a deadline. You know, they were defunding my position at the end of the year. It was just oh absolutely gosh. atrocious. And then another new job, which lasted about six months, it had me back in the office traveling to work. So I, I, you know, decided I really need to be working from home. So this like two years of my life have been all about needing to get the space to write. You know, after the job transitions, I had my son's girlfriend came to live with us. She was in a traumatic home situation. So it's just been sort of like, you know, kind of struggling through the yeah. weeds of needing to get my life clear enough to focus on this work, because this work in particular is very emotionally demanding for me. Mm -hmm. um, I did an eight, I think eight part story, uh, like a Russell Knoll story, which was supposed to be like the light and easy stuff while my life was too stressful to write Transistor. And I've, I've done several of those since then. Um, and it's kind of like these big stories like Peggy or like Transistor, they are unbelievably emotionally demanding yeah. and demanding of time and energy to write. So it's kind of like I'm fighting my way back to it. I wrote some short pieces uh, in the transistor world as part of my Advent series. So if you go oh, back yes. and you read that Advent series, there are these little transistor stories, which I just absolutely loved. They were so fun. I love these characters. I love the world. Um, it takes a lot to write to them. So it's all about getting the time and the energy lined up so that I can give to it in the way that I want to. Yeah. Well, you can sense your love for the world and the characters. And I'm uh, just grateful that you have put so much into it and have given us 
these 14 chapters and they're beautiful. I do need to read the Advent series. I haven't read the Advent series, so I'll go and do that. And I love that in fan fiction, like it, it really is like what you want it to be. So if you want to do some little mini fix, you want to do like some little one shots, like you can do that and mm-hmm. nobody's telling you. And this could, you know, it's like, I definitely have some, some whips sitting there in hiatus mode that I'm always like, oh, I will get back to it. I will get back to it. And I just haven't gotten back to it. So oh, yeah. uh, absolutely, I, f- I feel like it's good to have here on this podcast um, authors that you admire are like in the same boat, like life just happens. You can't always get the time that you want, but that doesn't mean you don't love the work and they're not going to come back to it. Actually, in the, it's funny in the Clex fandom, I was in the Clark Lex fandom, there was an author that had written this huge series. It was called the identical series by an author called Lanning. And they had, they had written like a hundred some thousand words in this series. And I think maybe the last story was of the work in progress that just hadn't been updated in like 12 years or something. And just last year she came back to it. And I think part of it was um, that she had a commenter that I know from a discord chat that was a big fan of her work that just went through and we're like, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to comment on every single chapter. And she did that. And it was like, Lanning had said like that was just a huge thing for me to know that someone was still reading this and it just somehow I just it happened to be the right place the right time I had the time to do it and she picked it back up again and so I feel like it's good to not to say that it's going to take you 12 years I but I'm just it's like a lovely thing in fan fiction that I don't know like we leave things sometimes on YouTube but you can always come right back to it you can always come back. That's awesome to hear because one of my favorite Sherlock pieces was written by Lanning, 26 Pieces. Ah. But that, that U2 writer that I mentioned earlier, which she kind of disappeared from the fandom, she left her work in progress and she came back 15 years later and finished it. Yeah, amazing. So yeah. amazing. Well, I have some, um, because I've dominated your time for nearly three hours, as I seem to just tend to do nowadays, um, I have some like, I call them rapid fire questions. They never end up being rapid, but that's all right. That I wrote at about midnight last night. So we'll see how these look Okay. in the, in the clear light of day. Oh, okay. Here we go. First question. What are your top three Oasis tracks? Oh God. So putting you on I the spot. <laughs> really um, don't go away. Comes to my head mm-hmm. right now. Oh, Columbia. And I actually love to be where there's life. The Guy Marcher song. Ooh, yeah, that's wonderful. You don't hear that one come up as much. Yeah, that's a wonderful one. Uh, Related, what is your favorite Noel solo tune, and what is your favorite Liam solo tune? Um, so it's got this is kind of trite. I think everybody loves this one, but if I had a gun, I mean, how could you not? I also really love uh, "Be Careful What You Wish For." That's a great song from the mm. from the most recent album. For Lamb Tracks, I actually am getting more and more uh, impressed with "Diamond in the Dark," which is his current yes. single. It was really good live. You know, there's sometimes songs are cheesy, but they work so well, and that's one. I think so too. And if you're like someone fascinated by the Liam Noel dynamic. I mean, we could just do a whole nother episode on like song lyrics and stuff, but mm-hmm. the, um, I spent too much time on the dark side of your door. I might not see those baby blue eyes anymore. It's just like, Oh, I wonder who this is about. Right. <laughs> Which is really most of Liam's solo catalog. I feel like is where my yeah. brain goes. Um, 
if Oasis is miraculously reuniting tomorrow, what is your dream lineup? Oh, no, that's hard. I know it is. <laughs> I, I would put Andy Bell on bass. Mm-hmm. I think that Bonehead is the more authentic choice, but I am a huge Gem fan girl. I just so much. I just adore him. I would need to, I would have a very hard time not putting him on stage. Yep. I actually really like Tony McCarroll on drums. I loved his style. I will accept the opinion of musicians that he wasn't a good drummer, but I loved his sound. Yeah. I hear more and more of that now about Tony. Like Tony kind of, some people coming back and be like, you know what? He was actually, I think Owen Morris might've said their old engineer or something about like, he thought Tony was was great on definitely maybe and <laughs> he should get some more credit than he does oh man but he gets so much shit it's awful he does get it is awful he seems so nice and just lovely and really the outcome of that lawsuit where he was um you know he's kicked out of the band and wanted uh you know some compensation and some rights to the songs really was terrible i feel like how they because he just i think he got a pretty small settlement and then after that he he gets none of the royalties i think even from definitely maybe although i could be wrong but i just feel like he really got a kind of a bum deal and but he sort of still does talks and stuff and he's very gracious about it i feel like on twitter and stuff he'll tweet about all the anniversaries and yeah yeah he seems lovely yeah he seems like a good guy his book is fun too I see. That's one I haven't bought yet, and I need to buy it. I feel like I need oh, to. Oh, he's got a perspective. <laughs> yes. From what I've heard, he's like, he seems to really uh, like Liam and possibly hold some grudges against uh, not a big Noel fan, Tony McCarroll. <laughs> possibly some grudges. <laughs> yeah. I, I think about the lineup too, and I think part of it is compelling because of their current solo kind of setups right now. It's like, Jesus, Noel, like you have gem and chris sherrick already so just bring them over liam can either grab bonehead um and then just either grab andy bell or maybe bonehead could play a bass or get jay who know i don't know it just it seems like obviously it's just i don't think it's gonna happen anytime soon if at all no. but logistically it's like everybody's at the top of their game right now yes like fuck it would be so easy it would be i i will say though jay miller drives me nuts he irritates me to no end i, I like his is, actual playing or just his both whatever he's, he's just um yeah. and this is almost completely in ignorance he might be a really good person he seems to me like a really mediocre musician it's kind of in over his head and I like I wouldn't I don't know why he's still in Liam's band he drives me nuts he is just he's really I've heard some comments like that from music like I am a music fan but I'm not and I I have a guitar that I'm you know I like play open chords like I'm not Mm -hmm. a guitarist yeah but from what I've heard from like music music fans they're generally pretty overwhelmed underwhelmed with Jay I I have heard some people say that he's gotten much better over the past couple years but mostly it's just like he's He's fine. <laughs> he's very, very, very inattentive to the rest of the people on stage. He's kind of like uh, way up his own butt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I notice. Yeah. I can see that. Totally. We'll kick Jay out of our fantasy lineup then. No, Jay, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, here's um, one that could be a very short, very long answer. Um on the subject of RPF, what do you think is a misconception that people have about RPF or RPF writers? 
Um, I think the reputation or the sort of belief that RPF is creepy uh, really bothers me. I don't know why. I mean, I could stand, I could understand why someone might be like, if a little freaked out, I think that some RPF is, is a little loopy. I feel like what I do as RPF, right, is uh, it takes takes the actual characters quite seriously for yeah. the most part. Um, it's fairly respectful. The creep, the assumption that all RPF is creepy bothers me. That is creepy and invasive. Personally, I feel like you find more of that in sort of the mainstream kind of obsessive like social media fans and because like fan fiction writers, you yes, you do a lot of research about the people's personal lives um, in order to construct a story that those people will feel familiar mm -hmm. to a reader. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we're almost more conscious of like what is one we don't actually know facts because where we're getting our facts, a lot of it is like tabloids and stuff. So we're like pretty conscious of, like, I feel like where we get our information, mm -hmm. but then we have to sort of pick and choose what to use and to go into the story. And then most of us are like, if you want to tell a good story, you have to fill in with fiction anyway. So we know it's fiction, like regardless of whether we think like what really happened in, you know, that hotel room in 1996 or whatever, you know, it's mm -hmm. like you almost have to be more discerning about what you're strategic about it versus like the girl on Twitter that's like, Liam, say hello to me. You know, may, I don't know. Everybody can experience their fandom differently, but I also feel like RPF gets this odd rap, which is interesting also. I'm going on now, I know. Mm -hmm. But like, if you look at how as a culture we react to like, biopics mm -hmm. like the elvis movie this year it's like that's rpf of it's just commercialized it so it's fine when it's commercialized we're making money and it's like a studio or right. the sex pistols you know biopic that just came out mm -hmm. like why is that totally culturally fine and yet it's because it's like looped in with fan fiction and even look but then it's like like even by fan fiction writers it's like look down on it's like oh i do fanfic but i don't do rpf you know so i'm hoping by interviewing people that will like convince some people like why do you think that or like make you question that assumption yeah i agree and i've of course the thing with with biopics right with fan fiction movies uh is there uh they're written and produced by men they're what boys do yes and fan yes. fiction is what girls do yep it's still persisting. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it is. Yeah, shocking, right? Who could have believed it? Here's a fun question. Um, you can spend your afternoon one of two ways. You can either go to the pub with Liam and Bonehead, so you're probably going to drink some pints, and they're probably going to be talking about the 90s and all the fun they got up to. Or you can spend an afternoon in the studio with Noel and Gem. Where are you spending your afternoon? Great question. I would be in the studio watching them work. Mm. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, I should say one of the one of the other really formative experiences that you know is uh, kind of the background of my work is that I was married to a musician. Uh, I mm. was, so my the father of my kids was a piano player. We were together for about eighteen years, and he was in a band for like ten of those years. We did a lot of did three or four albums and toured a lot. So I really got to see quite a lot of like what that looks like from the back end. Yeah, that's that's actually, I mean, probably, um, you know, all life experience is good, but seeing that you're interested in Oasis 
fanfic. That's probably pretty invaluable life experience I think it's <laughs> as super, a writer. Yes, yes yeah. absolutely. And I miss it. You know, I some I still think of myself. I think I make a really good groupie. <laughs> There's a way in which it doesn't make sense. Like I'll go to a gig and it doesn't make sense to me that I'm not married to one of the band. And oftentimes, <laughs> oftentimes people will assume that I'm with the band because they're just, just like the way I behave myself or whatever. They're like, you married to that guitar player? <laughs> That's so funny. That- Probably just the way that you're familiar with like just how like a venue is set up in the backstage area and where things are where things are physically like yeah that yeah. probably makes you look like you know what you're doing <laughs> yep uh gv you've got free tickets uh are you going to see liam at nebworth this year as solo career or noel at glastonbury you, you have to go back in time a couple months for both of those but where who are you going to see and you've got great you've got a great view at both venues well this actually happened to me <laughs> this is exactly what i did <laughs> I, I'm, I'm from the States and I flew to the UK for about 10 days and I saw Liam on Friday the 3rd and I rode the charter bus back to Swansea, Wales with a bunch of drunk Welshmen that I'd never seen before. I got off the bus at like 5 a.m. and in a few hours I took a cab out to... Um, Margam, I think, is where that show was. Margam yes. Wales is where In It Together Festival was, and and I was in the front row for that show. With Fuck, Ray. really? I was. I was. That's right. Ray. You and were you with Savage? I was with Sav. Uh, I was with Savage like the day before. She went to a different okay. Noel show. She went to Nebworth on the fourth, and then she went to a different Noel show a couple days later. I think the ninth, but we did get to meet and talk to each other face to face. We walked around Manchester and we had tea and we went into Boots. It was very fun. Um, but so that was how I made that work. Because I just spent a lot of money and I saw both shows. <laughs> oh my gosh! So my sister and I, so Laura's into all the Oasis. She got me into this whole thing. Yeah. And so um, if we would have gotten into this last year we would have been where you are because we were talking about that, but um, she's just gotten out of school and is getting a job and starting to basically save money. And neither of us have updated our passports in 10 years. So it just like did not line up. It's not going to happen, which I think is tragic because I feel like Liam might be taking a break next year. I have no idea, but Mm -hmm. it was a huge year for him, obviously. So to see him, especially at Neverworth is like, like, can I just, not that we have to go on about this, but like, how were, how were both of them? Like, what were those experiences kind of like? It was amazing. It was incredible. So at, at Nebworth on the first night, I was one back. I was I was almost in the front row. I was one back. And I had ended up just coming in really early in the day. You just came in really early in the day and just kind of walked in where as far as I could walk without squishing people and ended up sitting next to some really sweet people, making friends. Um, and it was it was amazing. And I got to tell you, it was super emotional because, um, number one, as you know, they were um, kind of warming up, right? Kasabian was awesome. I don't even like Kasabian. They were awesome. Oh, yeah. And I um, saw footage. And then 
And then, so people were coming out and there's like a little balcony area on the side for Liam's family. And this old lady came out and people were going, Peggy, Peggy. And it wasn't, it was some different old lady with like white hair who was kind of like being very, you know, gregarious and smiling to the crowd and stuff. And then a few minutes later, this like chubby old lady came out very slowly and she kind of sat down and she folded her hands over her belly, you know, totally unimpressed. Nobody paid any attention to her. And I was like, I was in tears. I was like, oh, this oh she's here. I was like so emotional. And then, Ugh. and then, um, and then the show started and Liam came out in the white jacket. In the white jacket. In the white jacket. I was losing my shit. I was like, he's in a white coat. I can't handle it. Just the pictures to me, I was like, I was feeling emotional. And I've only been an Oasis fan since March. Like, I've just mainlined it. To be in the crowd was was amazing. And then Noel's show the next night was much smaller. You know, you're much closer to the show yeah. in, a, in a smaller one. It was wild. Like, they kind of swooped in just before the show started. Uh, they were coming in from off-site. They, the set was maybe going to be canceled all day because there were high winds and the stage was rickety. And so the, like people come in and a bunch of like black escalades and all of a sudden there are all these familiar faces, you know, and, and this is like walking around backstage and I can see um, Sharon Latham, you know, with her pink hair and she's out there with her cameras getting ready to shoot. And I could see like in the back, I was just, was staring at this familiar face and he was staring at me and he looked kind of irritated that I was staring at him and I couldn't look away. It was Phil Smith, the DJ who used to roadie for Stone Roses and then has been those gorgeous since 1956. And he was incredible. The show was incredible. I would say that as a band and as a performance, uh, you know, Noel's stage show is better. There's just, his band is tighter. They're better musicians. Um, they, they put on a really freaking good show. Um, Noel is like adorable. Like he is, um, he might've put on a tiny bit of weight because he just looked like you just wanted to bite his thighs. They were like so chewy. (laughs) Painted on those pants, baby. I saw some footage of him, I think going on, it was one of those last shows leading up to Glastonbury. And it's so, it's like, was on Instagram. It was like this like slow down video. And he's like flowing in the straw to warm up his voice. He just looks so fucking good. And I was just like, and his pants are just very like, wow, those are skinny. Yeah, but you're pulling it off. Yeah, so he's a 55-year-old man. Yep. There were a couple of years where he was really, really lean and just as hard as iron. You could almost Mm -hmm. worry him a little bit. He looked a little bit like overfit. And then like when I saw him this morning, I was like, oh, he's just so like, you just want to bite him. And then, and then I got to tell you, I had done this on purpose. I sat or I stood in the front row um, right in front of Gem's pedal board. So yeah. I knew that he would be right there. And, and I knew that I would have a clear view of Noel's face because, you know, being offset from the mic a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was not prepared for how, like, physically overwhelmed I was by Gem's presence. Uh, pictures oh do not really communicate how uh, attractive he is. And, like, he has slimmed down. He was really, really well-dressed, you know, like, definitely sort of more body-conscious clothes than I've ever seen him in before. 
and there are things I, I was very open about this on my on my Tumblr feed at the time. Gem has certain assets which might not be like sort of immediately apparent in most situations. He's got some really he's got some big things going for him. I was kind of like, <laughs> guys, eyeline <laughs> is right here. Exactly. So I was kind of like. Uh, really, really having some moments being in that stage. That was an amazing experience. Um, I had made I had made friends. Actually, this woman that I had sat beside at Nebworth, she actually ended up being right beside me the following day in Wales. Cool. We were like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, so we had these two <laughs> incredible shared experiences. And I was like, I don't know why I'm not married to that man right now. And she's like, really? I'm like, yes, that one. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, he really has aged so well, and just Gem is just like so adorable all the time. But he's yeah. like really aged as like the silver hair, mm-hmm. um, just wearing that so well. Yeah, I know that he's not for everybody, but I mean, he just really has my number. Uh, he is so so sexy. He also has my number, which it's like, yeah. I mean, being yeah, I would. I think it's his personality that maybe gets him a little less attention, just being so kind of like. I don't know. It's just that you think someone that attractive would get more like talked about, but you would. You're on you stage would. next to Noel Gallagher. It's probably right. I don't know. I don't know. Um, they were cute. They were cute. I couldn't look away. That's just like so wonderful to hear. Um, let's see. Let's do. Oh, what are your top three G sesty as I say tunes that make you put your tin hat on? And that's just a figure of speech, but make you kind of like. Hmm. Think about the implication of those. That um, line has to be about Liam Riddle or blah blah blah. Right. Well, take me, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Some Oasis fans don't seem to to remember that one. It's a uh, wild. Well, I'll try and like find a clip, at, or at least at the least, I'll link it in the show notes. But yeah, um, having a young man like Liam sing that into a microphone is like really what? <laughs> <laughs> really. Um. I I will never in a hundred years believe that Slide Away was written about a woman. Me too. Someone's sliding in somewhere and the two there's a writer and a singer and they're both males. Yeah. I don't know. Yep. It's so true. And um It's also just the sexiest song. Like the stru- I was talking to this Laura the other day, like the structure of it sounds like sex like it sort of builds to like an orgasm point like it's it's a wildly sexy song and it's very romantic and beautiful obviously but like it's a song to me that sounds like sex Mm -hmm. well and this one is not i think a song about liam i think it is a song about Noel's straight life but i think it's so informative is uh dream on uh, and and if we look at the the video of Dream On, right? So it's this it's this video of this couple, uh, and they're in this boxing match. And, oh, right. That and one. and um, and in the video, the man is absolutely getting his ass kicked by his wife. You know, this beautiful woman who like never has a hair out of order. And he is just so pleased to have his ass kicked by this woman, right? Um, 
and everyone else in the room is is so humiliated on his behalf and he's just kind of like yeah but when we look at the lyrics to this song it's very much like this this is a person who's in despair you know every day i'm hiding from the razor blade it's hanging in the kitchen um you know and it's like the kids are looking cute and it's like it's like he's just barely hanging on and and he's trying to appreciate or like be glad that he's making it through this life with this woman this sort of like married life right bitch keeps bitching all taking the shots as they fall but it's so bitter it's a very bitter song (laughs) it's a very bitter song and there's um there's no joy in Mudville in that song. So I think that's really interesting that like, this is the song that you write. Um, it's a, I don't know. It kind of sits weird. Yeah. I think that, is that on his first album? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Just so it's kind of, it, feel, it feels a bit like a breakup-y song to me. Yeah. If, you, if you've been no. in a marital relationship long enough, there come these times where you decide to stay together even though it feels like staying together is is like deciding to die right um it feels like death and you decide to do it anyways and that's that's kind of what that is like to me and that's not to say their marriage isn't valid but it's just there's a real depth of conflict in that song which i find very interesting yeah and those publicly i think it I was watching this interview the other day. I think it's late Oasis. Like, I think it's 2009 where he's talking about, and Noel always maintained up to the breakup that he was always going to be an Oasis. But he says something to the interviewer. They asked about Liam and he's like, you know, it's, uh, it is what it is. And then he compares it to, he says, we're basically in a bad marriage and we're just staying together for the kids, which is all you mm-hmm. wonderful fans out there, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's multiple times that he's compared it to a marriage or a bad marriage. And yeah, yeah. That's uh, very sad. Um, okay. Uh, if you would pull up your bookmarks list, or if you can think off the top of your head, can you give me a couple or however small amount or many you want to give of your favorite fic wrecks in the fandom? Jesus or just Oasis fic wrecks? Oh, good question. Um, so Savage and Wise's Stop the Clocks is a great yes. story. Wonderful. There was a long hiatus between the first few chapters and the final chapter, and then she finished it. I was really excited about that. That's a great one. Um, there was, it is a discontinued work in progress uh, by Man's Got a Limit. Oh, I love Man's Got a Limit. Um, I think the title of something like Time Slipping Away and What Does It Hold For Me or something like that is really way too long. That's a great story, and I would have really loved to see them continue it. Um, you know, the sort of idea of young uh, and old encountering each other. I love that. I know exactly which one you're talking about mm-hmm. as one of my favorites, too. And the um, Snick Fix first... Uh, Oasis story that I recall, and I don't remember the name of it, but it's her first ABO one where like they're in a bar in Detroit or something like that. Um, I loved that one. I thought it was super sexy. I don't know that not everyone loves ABO, um, but for me, 
I like I don't read ABO out uh, otherwise, uh, but that fic really worked for me because I love the way that um, it's so rational in Noel's head. Like he thinks that what he's doing is so reasonable, and you're clearly you're like, oh man, come on, are you for real? Um, you can just you know see that he's marching towards uh, disaster. Um, I thought it was so sexy. It's very sexy fic, and I feel like snake fic really grounds that trope in that in that fic really well. And I think that's the one uh, that just, yeah, I think it's in a series with the one that she just, I shouldn't say she, I don't know her pronouns, that they just updated uh, memories like air in your lungs or something. I think that mm-hmm. like there's a time skip and she just, they just, uh, I believe, published their sort of present day ABO. Yes, I enjoyed that one too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the young them young and angsty and just a total mess um i loved i loved that first one too yeah those are great ones um well let's come to our final question to me just to kind of wrap up um i know this is a kind of a broad question but i like to ask it like what does in this case rpf or fan fiction what is that what is this thing that you do what does it like mean to you and you can talk about that as a writer or both as a reader as well like what is this to you in your life that's a great question i think it has become clear to me over time that it's sort of about uh, letting go of shame inhibition and self-doubt um you remember me saying that was a really big part of of my attraction to Clint, it was definitely a part of writing Peggy. And I think that's really the lesson of Oasis is, um, is to want what you want and to be willing to go for and work for what you want, which is very different. I feel from, you know, we, I'm an American, we have this sort of really annoying, you know, narrative of like Protestant hard work, ethic which is really annoying and i feel quite soulless and kind of laden with shame what works for me about fan fiction is that it is essentially useless and fun right it's never going to make you money it's never going to get you status the only reason to do it is because you like it and there's a tremendous freedom and power that comes from somebody like liking something because you like something. Uh, that's what, why I get so irritated with sort of like purity fandom where like, you know, we need to, we need to believe that our favorite celebrity is actually a good person. I don't care. I don't need them to be a good person. You know, it's just not what I'm concerned about. But when we look about doing things, uh, because we love them, because we want them, and for no other reason, I think that it's um, you know we gain a lot of sense of self and uh, a sense of empowerment and uh, sort of efficacy. I would say that carries on outside. Those are wonderful thoughts. I absolutely agree and. Uh, yeah, just the point about it is essentially useless. I love, I love that. And I've always said like, it, it, dovetail us. I, I think you're getting at the same thing I am when I say like, it's an amateur pursuit and we do it for the love of the thing itself. There's no other reason. And that's increasingly hard to find like in this like 
super consumerist kind of, you know, the economy we have is capitalist and it's like everyone does everything else for money and people are always asking, why don't you turn this into something to make money off of it? And so it's almost this rebellious thing to say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it absolutely is. And that's not that's not to say that we shouldn't make money um, because I feel that, you know, many people who live in fandom, they do feel sort of economically disempowered. Yeah. Uh, you know, it feels sort of marginalized. And I would never encourage people to stay there, but there is an authenticity that comes from not having the need to make money that I have found empowering. I have found that for me, you know, my own personal self, my power comes forward uh, when I'm having fun. Yeah. You know, I'm most authentic when I'm having fun. And if something if I'm not enjoying myself, if I'm not having a good time, I know that it's not right for me. And that doesn't mean that you, you never do things that you need to do or that you ought to do. But there's a sort of essential freedom that comes from, from, from being yourself and having fun with it and not taking yourself too seriously. And I think that for me, writing fan fiction has really helped me to stop judging that and to embrace it because for me that's where the magic happens when you stop taking yourself so goddamn seriously uh, you become willing to take risks you become willing to fail you become willing to have people dislike you uh, you become willing uh, to be wrong and if you're not willing to be those things you're enchained you know you have to be willing to be wrong to take risks to be disliked uh, to be rejected in order to be authentic uh, yeah. so for me, there's a real spiritual practice. Yeah. You gotta be yourself. You can't be <laughs> no one else. <laughs> if that's not the short way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Jeannie, thank you. Thank you so much for talking fanfic with me and talking bandfic and RPF. Uh, it's been such a wonderful conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.